Warning, this podcast contains spoilers, coarse language, and a few too many kicks in the head. If it's something that's really well done the first time, it's not broken, stop trying to smash it. I'm always intrigued to see what it is that people are going to do with something that's already been done before. I hate remakes. I love remakes. Welcome everybody to episode 6 of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel and joining me as always is Evie. I ate something disgusting with a marshmallow. What did you eat with a marshmallow? Some kind of cookie. It wasn't good. Okay. Joining us today, we have a very special guest. We know her from her many appearances on the Made of Fail podcast, and she's also uh, one of my co-writers at Deconstructing Moya, a Farscape rewatch. Everybody, please welcome Tessa. This concept of marshmallows being gross is completely foreign to me. Same here. (laughs) Well, it's that weird graham crackery thing with the marshmallow on top, and it's all sealed in the chocolate. Was it just that the marshmallow didn't fit with the texture of the other things? Yeah. That's basically like a s'more, isn't it? Yeah, but it didn't work. But like one of those pre-packaged and weirdly condensed s'mores? I think this was just a cheap marshmallow. Maybe you needed it to microwave it for like 10 seconds. Just get that meltiness to it. And make it explode. (laughs) Yes. All right, so Tessa, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I guess I'm part of the Native Fail family, as it were. Cousin! Uh, (laughs) um, I've appeared on a handful of shows. And like you said, I also do write for Deconstructing Moya. And why don't you tell us a bit about your Ustream channel? A good handful of months back, I kind of out of nowhere just decided I wanted to do... It has a, to have been almost a year by now. Yeah, it's it's been a while. But I kind of just decided I wanted to do a Let's Play of something because I enjoyed watching other people do them. And around that time, I also had discovered a game called Aversion that somebody had kind of um, tricked me into playing. My meltdown over that became... It was glorious to watch. Yeah, a lot of people really wanted to see me play this thing live so that they could watch me completely lose my mind. And Well, mixing you and Aversion makes for one hell of a series premiere. <laughs> well, anyways, so yeah, I did a Ustream of it. It was something I just kind of decided I was just going to keep on doing after that. So I went from aversion on to playing other games and I've been doing it every week. It's been on Thursdays. Right now it's from seven to eight central time at mm-hmm. night on Thursdays. And it is live. There's a chat channel that I talk to people with. I do also record the stuff so that, you know, people who can't make it to the live shows can still watch it. It's by no means anything like really high production value. It's just kind of me getting onto Ustream, playing games, and just kind of having people watch me. The perfect place for internet socializing. (laughs) I've done a couple of audio logs, Mm -hmm. not so much reviews of things as kind of reactions to them. Just kind of getting your thoughts down. I don't really consider myself a reviewer, but I... I, Well, you've been doing a great job at deconstructing Moya. Oh, well, thank you. But I I guess my most popular one out of those that I've done was I kind of had a meltdown over the last Airbender movie. I think everybody kind of had a meltdown. Yeah. Even the people who didn't see it. 
But yeah, so I haven't actually done one of those in a while, and I'm probably overdue for another. But yeah, so that happens occasionally on there too. I'd like okay. to start branching out with what I'm doing on that, and that might happen. But I'll, then again, I'm also incredibly lazy, so it may not. <laughs> so you have things in the planning stages. Yeah, kind of. I don't want to say anything more than that because uh, because there's no guarantee there's it'll no happen. Guarantee it will happen. <laughs> okay. Also, I'm a pony. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> you have to start a My Little Pony rewatch blog now. Oh my god, I kind of do. Yeah, I mean, basically, just to give some context to this, I kind of have totally fallen in love with the reboot of the My Little Pony show. Mm -hmm. And my Twitter icon changed to Pinkie Pie, and I have... And a lot of the personality of your tweets, too. Well... <laughs> To be completely fair, Pinkie Pie is basically me on a sugar high, so it didn't take very much change to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, as we ask every guest, what is your feeling in general when it comes to remakes? Well, this might be a first for you guys. I actually am generally pro-remake, I think. I think there's some really good ideas that have been done, but maybe not given a good enough look sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes they have been a good, given a good enough look, but it's kind of nice to go back and revisit them. Mm -hmm. I tend to really not be a fan of just shot for shot total remakes where they don't change anything. You kind of like I, it where they kind of play with the material and make it their own. Exactly. Yeah. I, I like the idea of people going back to a concept, especially when it's a really good and interesting concept and doing their own spin on it and seeing mm -hmm. where they can take it. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I don't think it's a, um, I think there are a lot of really good ideas that deserve a second look. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean that the original looks at them were bad. It just means that a lot of ideas, it's worth. There's still potential for exploration. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and, it, and it's really interesting sometimes to see where somebody can take a story and go in a completely different direction. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if, Remakes didn't exist. Uh, my favorite show on TV right now would not exist right now, which would be the My Little Pony one. So, Perfect point. So you hear that, Internet? I am not alone. <laughs> All right. Evie, you want to tell us what films we're doing today? Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's no. Eleven. And I know, Tessa, you were quite a fan of the recent Ocean's Eleven series. And mm -hmm. you had never seen the original before? I actually hadn't. So this is going to be interesting to discuss. Yeah, I have to kind of admit my bias here. I, I love the um, 2001 version, and I actually, prior to getting ready for this, I hadn't ever actually seen the original. I knew it existed, but i never gotten a chance to see it. So you see, our remakes podcast is exposing people to the original movies, thus showing the benefits of it. <laughs> Though when we get to talking about the movie, we'll argue the actual benefits of that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's start with the 1960 film. It was directed by Lewis Milestone and written by George Clayton Johnson, Jack Golden Russell, Harry Brown, and Charles Lederer. Befuddled criminal mastermind Spiros Asabos concocts a plot to hold up five Las Vegas casinos in a single night, so he hires Danny Ocean, who pulls together the fellow veterans of his 82nd Airborne unit so as to pull off the heist with military precision. After a rather long setup, which involves Dean Martin and Sammy Davis singing, Shirley MacLaine getting drunk, and Red Skeleton being outed as a gambling addict, the heist goes down when they blow an electrical tower outside the city. The blackout happens just at the turn of midnight on New Year's Eve, while everyone is drunk and singing, and the gang uses special glasses and flashlights to follow trails of infrared paint they'd previously left behind. 
They take out the guards with ease, stuff the cash into duffel bags, and drop them into the casino's trash cans on the way out, where they'll be picked up by one of their members in his garbage truck. Word quickly spreads about the heist and police checkpoints are set up, but the garbage truck is, of course, able to get through them with no problem and the money is hidden in a junkyard outside of town. The only problem that night was when one of their gang, Tony Bergdorf, dropped dead of a heart attack while crossing the street. Tony's main motive to join the heist was a doctor's visit that told him he didn't have long to live, and he wanted to see that his estranged wife and son would be taken care of. In his honor, the rest of the team scrounges up a measly $10,000 for her, which barely covers the funeral expenses. And then the casinos hire Duke Santos to track down the money. An infamous reformed gangster, Duke has also recently become engaged to the mother of Jimmy Foster, another member of the Eleven. When Duke hears that the deceased Tony was a member of the 82nd, he not only remembers that Jimmy was part of the same unit, but learns that Jimmy was in Vegas at the time of the robbery. Duke puts the pieces together, but instead of going to the authorities, he tracks down Danny with a proposition. If they give him half the loot, he'll let them go free with the rest. Danny agrees, but then comes up with an idea to get the loot out of town. They break into the funeral home where Tony's body is being held and, believing he'll be shipped out of town the next day, hide the money in his coffin. The next day, all remaining members of the Eleven show up at the funeral service to quote-unquote pay their respects. Duke is there too, having again figured out this piece of the plan. But then comes the twist when they ask about a strange sound coming from the back room. It's the cremation oven. That's right, Tony's wife had him cremated, and all the money went up in flames with him. The remaining Eleven leave free but defeated. So Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes, but it's a weak recommend. Like a really, really weak recommend. Okay. This movie breaks that cardinal rule of filmmaking, which is show, don't tell, which in itself would not be a problem if what they weren't telling was told in a more interesting way. The film also has a whole lot of just pacing issues where for like the first chunk of the film, nothing happens. The cast does have a good dynamic and Sinatra is really good. Like he's great as Danny Ocean, but the film just isn't there. That's all I got. <laughs> okay. Tessa, do you recommend this movie? I want to, but I kind of can't. I like the Rat Pack. I do. But the problem, like, Evie already touched upon the pacing issues, which are massive. The entire first hour of this movie is almost totally pointless. And really, uh, it's not a horrible movie, but it's a bad heist movie. It seems like it can't really figure out what it wants to do. There's a lot of relatively interesting plot threads that it puts forward and then doesn't really follow up on any of them. And aside from a couple of the characters, the cast is way too big to be as forgettable as it is. <laughs> and so true. I also can't recommend this movie. It's not so much that it's bad, it's just boring. As the others said, the pace is just all over the place. It takes almost an hour just to introduce the main cast before the setup of the heist begins. And even when we finally get to that point, the heist itself is repetitive and kind of ridiculously simplistic. There is a half-hearted effort to get into the characters and why they're after the money, but many of them are difficult to connect with and you can't really root for any of them. There's no motive beyond the heist than just, I want money. That said, the final two minutes of the movie are absolutely classic, but even then, a solid punchline can't make up for a ponderous and uninvolving buildup. I remember texting you when I was watching it yesterday, just going like, there's a heist in this movie, right? <laughs> oh yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. I clocked yeah. it. It's 53 minutes before they start talking about the heist. Yeah, one of my notes is one hour in before the plan is actually even discussed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the synopsis of the remake here. 
The 2001 version was directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by Scott Corwin and Ted Griffin. The day he's released from prison, Danny Ocean starts pulling together a team of friends and new faces for a new heist. He wants to break into the shared vault of three casinos owned by Terry Benedict, simply because the man is hooked up with Danny's ex-wife Tess. It's a very complicated heist, far more so than I can sum up here without taking 20 minutes, but it gets to the point where the money in the vault is covered in explosives and Benedict is told that he himself has to pack up half the money and load it into a van or the entire stack will be destroyed. He does so with the intention of taking out the van and sending a SWAT team into the vault, but the van turns out to be an empty remote-controlled robot and the other half of the loot was cleared out by the SWAT team, which was really a chunk of the Lead 11 in disguise. Danny has supposedly been in a cell this entire time, and Benedict wants him to get the money back for him. Danny will only do so if Benedict gives up Tess. Benedict agrees, unaware that Tess is listening in. Benedict loses Tess in the money and has nothing to connect Danny to the crime, but still sends him back to jail for breaking parole. Several months later, Danny is released again, both with the money and Tess waiting for him. So, Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes. Oh, dear God, yes. (laughs) This is what people want from remakes. Yes. Okay, I have a little story. My best friend hates George Clooney. Like, hates George Clooney. And I went and saw this, and then I basically cajoled her into, like, okay, you know what, if you hate it, we can leave, like, right away. She loves this movie. Like, this <laughs> movie, it's, like, it's smart. It There's stuff that we're told that I can't even verbalize how good this movie is. Like, this is exactly what I want from a remake. It's smart. It doesn't treat its audience like they're idiots. You know who all the characters are. And there's like 11 guys in the heist. And you kind of get an idea of who everyone is. Mm -hmm. And they have names as opposed to the other guys where I had no idea what their names were. Well, you know, in the original film, you had that guy who was the middle-aged man in the the suit. And then there was that guy who was the middle-aged man in a suit. And then then there there was was the other guy who was the middle-aged man in a suit. (laughs) They they had... Yeah, they had names. It's just that a good half of them maybe had their names said once. And had no personalities yeah i think what works in favor of this movie too is the fact that it has a diverse cast Mm -hmm. it's not just a bunch of white guys (laughs) which works because i couldn't keep the other guy straight because it was just a bunch of white people and sammy davis jr and sammy davis jr he's the only one that i remember i love him okay so tessa i know it's a foregone conclusion but do you recommend this movie yes 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 a million times yes it's has almost none of the issues that the original had. There's no real problem with pacing at all. The plot's actually really interesting. The characters, like Evie said, there's it's still a very large cast, but they're all distinct enough characters and they're actually interesting characters. There's not really any risk of forgetting anybody. And I don't think there's any surprise that I also recommend this movie. There's a variety in the cast, and we're rooting for them all. There's a genuine motive behind the heist and a slimy villain who we want to see the loot taken from. It's colorful and clever with moments of loose improvisation and others of meticulous precision. And for everything you accept coming in, there's a surprise that pops up right behind it. There's a few moments that are a little silly, but it's so well-crafted with such a strong cast of rich, varied talent that it's impossible not to be swept away. So why don't we move into open discussion? Why don't we start with Danny Ocean? Specifically, let's talk about Frank Sinatra in the original. I don't care about yeah, him at all. Yeah, he, it's one of those things like, I mean, he doesn't really even have the whole thing where he's the one who came up with the plan going for him. It seems like right. the only, like his only real role is that he knows all these guys. Right. It's like the other guy hired him and then he hired all the other guys. He's almost like the Brad Pitt character. Right. Yeah. 
it's like we're only supposed to root for this man just because he's Frank Sinatra. Pretty much. He's kind of a dick. Oh, yeah. oh, I even, oh, I, even yeah. I actually have that as one of my notes, I think. Yeah, Danny's kind of a total dick is my note there. Yeah, I literally wrote kind of a dick too. So I think. <laughs> um, There's a dick in all of our notes when it comes to yeah. Frank. <laughs> but I mean, he's kind of a really bland character too. He has some fun moments, but those are fun moments because he's Frank Sinatra, not because he's Danny Ocean. There's this recurring bit of him. Every time he picks up a phone, he has to do a prank phone call with either a different voice or faking his death. The first time that it happened, it was really cute and funny. And then he kept. And then it kept going on. Yeah, and then it was like, okay. (laughs) And then you have other bits like when him and another person walk into the room at the same time, the phone is ringing. We got a race to get it. On there, I don't. I was so confused. Yeah. Or like when he's going to pull out the map for the heist, it's he can't just pull out a map. He has to pull out a cloth and then do the magic trick where he turns it into another cloth. Yeah. And then he lays that down, and then the one on the table looks nothing like what he was holding. <laughs> it's like Frank Sinatra got bored and was just like, "What little things can I do today?" <laughs> there was no investment in this at no, all. No, right. a lot of it is them just counting on you're going to like Danny because it's Frank Sinatra. Right, yeah. which works to an extent, but it needs to have something else. I mean, if the if the story was a little bit more coherent, maybe that would be okay. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing else hooking you. If the only reason you go in to see this is because it's the Rat Pack, it's because it's Frank Sinatra, it doesn't work. I know. And then the main motive they give him is that he loves the thrill of gambling and he's never lost. Yeah. And the entire point of the film is to have him lose. I mean, it's... For some reason, Danny Ocean is Captain Kirk in Wrath of Khan. He's never had that no-win scenario, so we have to give him a no-win scenario. And even giving him the no-win scenario, it's kind of forced that it becomes a no-win scenario. Yeah, and you kind of almost feel happy because you're like, I don't want this guy to get all Yeah, basically, yeah, because it's like you're seeing this total arrogant jerk getting his comeuppance, and that's not what you're supposed to feel for the protagonist. I mean, it works sometimes when that's supposed to be intentional, that you're trying to have an asshole protagonist. But I don't think that was the point here. Yeah. And he just, he falls into the ensemble. I don't entirely understand why the film is named after him. Yeah. Because he doesn't really stand apart from the other ensemble. I mean, he's not even the one who goes and recruits everybody. They kind of scatter and recruit each other. Right. It's more, his only real role in the whole thing is to be Frank Sinatra. Yeah, is to be Frank Sinatra, and but the only real reason he's kind of called upon is because he knows all these other guys. And dude, can we go ahead and just like branch out from here? I guess. Yeah, let's move on to George Clooney in the remake, who is completely different. I mean, he's a scoundrel. Yes, but he's a likable scoundrel. Yeah, he's almost playing George Clooney. Yeah, well, the media perception of George Clooney. Yeah, he's exactly. He's got the head bobbing smile and everything, and but he also cares about the people he's working with. Oh yeah, I mean, you you definitely get. The feeling, like, there's a very genuine feeling that there's a real strong friendship between him and most of the others. I mean, there's some of the others that he doesn't know as well. But he forges a good friendship with them. Yeah. yeah. I would say the only one that he, that's kind of not there as much is with Yen. Well, yeah, but Yen is kind of always apart. But we'll get, we'll get to Yen. Yeah. I like that right from the start, when we're seeing him in his um, interview thing Mm -hmm. as he's coming out of jail, right from the start, he's kind of not so much joking around with the guys that are interviewing him, but he's got that really laid back, casual. You get the feeling that he's always one step ahead of everybody. Exactly. Yeah, you get that right Even in the way that he's answering them, it's still kind of outsmarting them. It's like, what, am I going to tell you I'm going to go and commit another crime after this? (laughs) No, but as soon as he walks out, he's planning another crime. 
yeah. there's there's actually the original version of yeah, that. Yeah, the scene in the trailer where he ends with the line, how much do you guys yeah, make? Yeah, how much do you guys make? <laughs> when they ask him, uh, what do you plan to do if released? Yeah, that was such a great moment in the trailer. I, I always keep expecting that every time I watch this movie. Yeah, I actually, I forgot that they had taken that out when I went and watched it again this last time. And you see, I haven't seen the trailer in years, and yet I still always expect to hear that line. Well, because it's totally in character for him. Yeah, it was such a great trailer line, too. I love this Danny Ocean because you care. And the reason why he's 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 a jealous guy, so obviously, you know, he's stealing the money to get back at a guy. But what I love is that he steals from people who deserve it. Right. Yeah. To be honest, in the original, it's not like the Vegas owners didn't deserve it, too. But yeah, I think it was one of the taglines for the remake when they were making it was that in any other city, they would be the bad guys. Yeah. But because it's Vegas. Yeah. Nobody sympathizes with the casinos in Vegas. Exactly. Like everybody has their Vegas story where they come out of it losing and people want to see the casinos lose. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that Terry Benedict is totally deserving of what he gets. Yeah. And I love how they had that montage of the three other people who tried to steal from the casinos in Vegas. That was awesome. That was amazing. Ending with the one guy who gets out where they just gun him down in the street. He's completely unarmed, but they still just gun him down in the street. Yeah. 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 Why don't we move on to the love interests? In the original, we have the blink and you miss her Beatrice Ocean played by Angie Dickinson. Yeah, I was going to say there's a love interest in the first one. Yeah. <laughs> His estranged wife who like shows up and then pops up again and then you never hear from her ever again. And then there's the, uh, is she a floozy? The floozy, yes. Uh, what? I guess it was former mistress. Or she was his girlfriend after he kind of broke up with his wife, but yeah. he still well, and his it, wife. It was, yeah, Adele. It was one of those things, like I said, where they put forward some plot threads and then don't go anywhere with them. Yeah. Like they, that could have been an interesting aspect to the story, but they don't do anything with that character. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing is not only does the fact that he's cheating on this wife that he's trying to get back not make well, you like an him anymore. So. I know, but he's the one who's still trying yeah, to get it back. Still. Well, yeah, I mean, he goes straight from talking to her and flirting with her and then immediately she turns around. Yeah. yeah, and it's it just makes the character You don't care about sleazy. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you don't want him to get his wife back because she's kind of awesome. And you're like, yeah. go off and live your life and leave this guy. Yeah, and she kind of existed only to be brought up again. Her only point was a... to do that speech of why it is that Danny's in it just for the thrill of the gamble. Yeah, pretty much. Which you could have easily put in with any other character. You could have had one of his army buddies say it. And it actually would have been better coming from them because on the battlefield, he would have been in it for the adrenaline thrill too. And maybe this is his way of recapturing that. That would have made a lot more sense actually. Mm -hmm. And it would have cut out an otherwise totally pointless scene. I think maybe they just felt they needed more female characters. I don't know. Yeah, because Beatrice, I'm like, she really doesn't serve the plot at all. There's no reason for her to be there. And then the character of Adele, his girlfriend, the only purpose that she serves to the plot is so that the villain, that Duke Santos, knows that the other army guys are there at the hotel, too. Yeah, and, it's like the and only to be honest, there. And that's something that you could have done elsewhere in a completely right. different way, too. Yeah. Uh, um, what's the character's name? Joey could have run into his mother at the casino. I mean, you Jimmy. could have done that. Jimmy, sorry. Yeah. Exactly. It so could have been streamlined down. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not even like the character... She doesn't even do anything past that. She's like in those two scenes and then she's gone. Yeah. Yeah. The only Uh, reason she's there is it's literally like the stupidest setup for a character. It's just so she can tell Jimmy's mother that Jimmy's at the casino. That's the only reason that they set her up And then they have that odd scene where he hooks his key in her cleavage. Oh, Which makes you just like him even less. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the scene where Adele calls Beatrice. And it's like, why? What is the point of this scene? And yeah. then she gives that little speech. Yeah. Yeah. That was what I was And that, and that speech, her, her mood during that speech didn't match at all her mood when she broke up with her husband. Right. It's like yeah. she suddenly became a completely different character. I don't understand the inclusion of these two at all. Yeah, it. You just want to grab the screenwriter, shake him, and be like, "Why are they there? Just tell me. Yeah. Just tell Cause me." Because you know the cast didn't have enough people in it already. Exactly. <laughs> and yet, you know what I like about the remake, and I think Evie, this is something that you said when you were texting me yesterday, was that the remake is like a half hour shorter, and yet there's so much more going on in it. Well, actually, they cut about ten minutes off the runtime because okay. it was because um, this the one was like two hours and ten minutes and didn't yeah. need to be at all. Yeah, the original's 127 minutes, and the remake is 117. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, they shaved 10 minutes off the runtime, and I'm like, it's so much better. Yeah. It's shorter. It, well, I think it's because everything's quicker, too. Yeah, yeah you don't, you don't um, what, I was looking at, trying to keep track of when they finally get around to, like, talking about the heist in the remake, and I think it's, like, the 20-minute mark or something. And even then, that's only when they're talking about it in detail. Yeah, but and he's even already working the plans of it the moment he gets out of jail. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see him with the newspaper right away, and mm-hmm. he's already... I mean, he doesn't say anything necessarily, but he's already looking but, for but people. But you know the plan's already in motion. Right. In the original, it's like they're buying the groceries before they even have the recipe sorted out. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, in the original, when I first started watching it uh, yesterday, I was just like, did I miss something? Like, I had to go back a few times and was like, did I skip a couple of scenes? Like, did my DVD player do something? Right. Because, like, all of a sudden they're just in this, and I'm like, wait, no, go back. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk about uh, Julia Roberts as Tess Ocean, the other ex-wife. She's a character! Yes. <laughs> I love that! She doesn't really do much, but she is very important in terms of the plot. Oh, yeah, she's way important. Again, Techn- yeah, Technically, I, I... this entire film is a pissing contest between two men over a girl. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the entire reason that he puts together this plot in the first place. I love Rusty's line, though, about how he's just like, if it comes to testing the money, please remember that test is not split 11 ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I love that bit there at the end where instead of Danny, like, pleading with her or, or anything like that, it's just turn the TV on, turn it to channel, whatnot, and then she just sees that Terry's totally willing to just sell her out to get his money back. I do have to admit that that's actually kind of one of the weaker scenes of the movie. It does feel a little bit forced. It's kind of like, oh, I don't know about anything that's going on, but hey, I can get you your, your money back because I know this guy. Well, that's why I kind of liked is there at the end, they kind of took Danny and did to him what they do with the Duke Santos character of you have underworld connections. Yeah, actually, that's that's kind of a good point. But what I love is that, you know, to the modern day casino owner, that's not good enough. Right, exactly. Yeah. And of course, he knows that Danny was the one who stole the money, but he doesn't have anything to connect him on it. Oh, yeah. If he didn't know then, he knew when Tess was watching what was going on. Yeah. But that line, you of all people should know in your hotel, there's always someone watching, was kind of... I think even in the commentary, they said that that's the one line in the movie that they wish they could redo because it's very movie line-ish. Yeah, I hate it when movies do that, where it's, we got to repeat a line of dialogue from earlier in the movie, word for word, just to reemphasize it. Right. It's very... um, All she needed to do was look at him and walk by. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would have been perfect. Well, and they already kind of sold it with just the facial expressions. And I mean, they already pretty much did that. And they just kind of stopped the whole thing. To, right. And that's, that's, my, that's my problem with that scene is that it's not really how people talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of bad dialogue. Yeah. 
I guess. But yeah, I mean, it's Tess is amazing as a character, even though she doesn't really do anything. She is kind of the MacGuffin of the story. Yeah. She's basically just what the plot's entirely revolves around. And I'll give it to Julia Roberts because I kind of tend to forget that she's a really good actress. And when Tess and Danny have their scenes, like when he comes to see her at the restaurant and something, Mm -hmm. and you kind of see where she still is in love with him. Oh, yeah. There's awesome face acting going there. But there is also this nice bit of embarrassment and disgust. I mean, not because of probably whatever he put her through when he was arrested. Oh, yeah. No, there's definitely very conflicted feelings there, and it definitely shows. She cared about the man, but he turned out to be something that she didn't expect. A schmuck. And I think part of the film is then proving to her that, no, he really is who he said he was. Or what was the line that he had about lying to her? I only lied lied about about being being a thief, and I don't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great line. I love um, when he's asking her about Benedict, and this kind of encapsulates her response when he asks, does he make you laugh? And she goes, he doesn't make me cry. Yes. And that sort of encapsulates the relationship that she almost has with Benedict. Which is weird, because Benedict looks like a person who would make people cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Well, and I think she was trying to convince herself that he was somebody that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. With Benedict. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of yeah. get that feeling that she, and especially like... Well, here's the thing um, I'll give Benedict credit for is he is honest. Yeah. He's just brutal. <laughs> There's the scene um, when um, Benedict and Tess are both getting ready for the fight where he asks her, like, what were you thinking about? And she says, I was thinking about you. You kind of don't buy it. Yeah. Like, it feels forced. Like, she's just saying that. Right. Because it's what he wants to hear. Right. Yeah. Right. You can tell why why she's going with Benedict because he is someone who is how he presents himself. He's extremely controlled, extremely honest, but to a very blunt and sometimes ruthless degree. Well, because, yeah, that's back in, in her conversation with Danny where he talks about, I only lied about being a thief. And then she said, well, I'm with a man who doesn't have to make that distinction. And he says, no, he's very clear on both. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and move on to the antagonist? We're already talking about Terry Benedict, so why don't we go ahead yeah. and keep <laughs> Holy balls, he's an awesome antagonist. He He is. is. And what I love is he's not evil, evil. I mean, he's got his business to run, and he just tries to run it as smoothly and as meticulously as possible. He's, um... As the character says, he's a machine. Yeah. I think they talk more than once about how um, ruthless he is and how if you cross him, he doesn't just go after you. He goes after everybody who has ever known you Mm -hmm. in response. I love the fact that when they talk about that, and then you kind of see that as the payoff when you meet Terry, because it's like, he does not seem like, you know, this really nice guy. When he's like glad handing the high rollers and everything, he seems very nice and polite and everything. But at the same time, you kind of think that should he want to, he could snap your neck at any time. He's got a definite like intensity to him that even when he's not angry, he still kind of has that intensity going there where you feel like he could uh, just snap you in half. Right. And and yet he's still professional. He, yeah. he doesn't he's yeah. not like trying to scheme anybody out of money. He's not trying to roughhouse people or bully them unjustified. I mean, right. like even the scene where the Bernie Mac character is revealed to be like someone who's operating in his casino undercover. He's not like taking him out back to break his kneecaps. It's like, get off my property. I never want to see you again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We don't see what he would have done right. later. But... Well, but he's not an ugly thug. 
No, he's not. They're not playing him too over the top. He is still a man who still feels justified in his actions. I mean, yes, he does threaten the lives of the people who stole his money from him, but let's remember how much money they just stole from him. Right. And just how much of a consequence that's going to have in terms of all of his investors, in terms of his business property, that's going to completely ruin his reputation. Of course, he's going to want to kill them. Yeah. Well, I loved his line on when Rusty calls him to announce that he's just robbed the robbery. The Mm -hmm. robbery's underway. He's like, okay, you proved your point. You uh, broke into my vault. Congratulations. You're a dead man. Mm -hmm. And also, that's also a power play to try to put the other person off and hoping they'll make a mistake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and right from the start, like right as soon as that conversation starts happening, he's already trying to outmaneuver them. Right. He's listening for the background noises and Mm -hmm. like tells some of his guys that, oh, he's next to the slots. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he is someone who is as smart as Danny Ocean and covers all of the bases. Which is a a nice difference from the original. It's a nice cat and mouse where they're kind of like constantly outsmarting one another. Well, why don't we move on to Duke Santos, Cesar Romero in the original? He just kind of becomes our antagonist. And like, yeah, oh, he's really an antagonist because he's no worse than the main guys we've been following for the entire right. film. Well, I mean, yeah. and, and it's one of those things like, well, because first off, he's introduced early enough on, but then he kind of vanishes. We and don't then... know the part that he's going to play until like the last half hour. Right. Yeah. It takes them until the movie's almost over to even introduce him as a real antagonist. Yeah. And even then it's kind of very hard to be scared of him. Yeah. And what I love is that, well, I mean, he's not really like a physical threat. He's not going to like kill anybody. It's just, he just has leverage over them. Yeah. But even then it feels, well, first off the way he finds out about the fact that it was them is kind of random. Yeah. Yeah. I love how most of him is just sitting there calling up people who can't tell him anything. And then like his wife mentioned something and, Oh, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but I think Cesar Romero still plays him well. Oh, he does. It's just that he comes in. It's always fun seeing him not play Joker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He comes in way too late. And I think, like you said, he's not any worse. There's there's no reason to really feel any worse about him than there is about our protagonists. Right. Uh, I mean, even to the point where, I mean, he... He never really figures out anything for himself. He's always just given information just right at the point where it's useful. Right. Like, where did they hide the money? Ring, ring. Oh, hey, I found a cash belt at the funeral home. <laughs> Which, ha- having seen this, uh, there was an episode okay, of CSI. Yeah. You can't just get the cash belt off. It would have to be torn off. Well, are we talking about 1960 standards, too? I'm pretty sure that even then they would have put them on tightly so that it couldn't just be slipped off and slipped on to something that has, like, the cash on the top and cash on the bottom and then in the, a stack of ones in the middle. Can't you just pull the middle sections out and then it'll cause the front and back of the cash stack to collapse inward and you can just slide them out? I'm guessing not if it's tight enough that it would rip if you tried to take anything out of there. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's not like these casinos are necessarily doing things all that professionally anyways. Right. Yeah, considering they're idiots. They have like so three really... guys with candles counting chips in the back room. What was yeah. the candles? They have flashlights. We yeah. see they come in with flashlights. Why does everyone have candles? Yes, when you have oh, stacks funny. of cash, that's where you want an open flame. Exactly. I was like, you're going to set your money on fire. You deserve, you're all idiots. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's this weird thing that they have between him and the Jimmy character of guts and whether or not you have enough guts and yet he can't stomach liquor. And I don't, yeah. what was the point of that? 
I don't know. Those aside that they had for like the five main characters of the eleven were just so random anyway. So yeah, at that point I, I was like, is there it's a like they're, they're just throwing stuff in just to try to give depth to the characters and it's yeah, it's not working. It doesn't really tie into the narrative at all. All right, well, want to start moving on to the uh, teams themselves. Since we're talking about Duke, let's go ahead to Jimmy Foster, played by Peter Lawford, Duke Santos's future son-in-law. At least he had some semblance of a storyline going. Yeah, I mean, but his entire motivation is he's a spoiled rich kid who doesn't want his mother to buy him things anymore. Yeah. And we find this out after he calls up his mom for more money. Right. Yeah, what the I do like that scene though um with when he's on the phone with his mom and Dean Martin in the background with the little reactions that he's having. Yeah. That was funny. Kid who's got to call mom and to make a living. <laughs> I do have to say that at the very least he has a very clear point to mm. why he was sought out for the team because he's bankrolling it. Partially, yeah. Yeah. At least with him, it's very obvious what he's doing. With a lot of the others, it's very difficult to tell why they were even yeah. picked. And he was yeah. su- he was such the right hand to Danny anyway. I mean, it's like whenever Danny's on, Jimmy's there pretty much most of the time. So it's right. like he's almost as much of, if not more of a lead than Danny is. Yeah. So I don't even understand why they didn't just make him. Like Jimmy's well, 11. <laughs> he's... There's more character to him, at least, than there is Danny Ocean. Right. So. But even then, when he, the tie between him and Duke Santos isn't really played up that much after yeah. Duke Santos catches up to them. It's Duke goes to Danny instead of going to Jimmy. Right. And they suspect that Jimmy might be the one that, like, routed them out or something. And right. That, and you would think that like would actually play up more if, if he had gone to Jimmy instead. Right. And then Jimmy suddenly is on the outs with the group. Yeah, they could have made that interesting. I mean, you could have almost opened with the heist and then just have the rest of the film play out as what happens as the money goes all over the place well, afterwards. Yeah, because cause obviously the heist was not really that important to see in this movie. Right. Yeah. Right. And well, why don't we go ahead and just mention uh, Jimmy's mother play by Ilka Chase. She's such a token rich mother. All she wants to do is take care of people or she wants people to need her. She's very needy and very needing people to need her. <laughs> And between her son and her five husbands. Yeah. Yeah. Which, did they all die or did she divorce them or what? I, I they never remember. really got into that. But I, what I do love is that line where she says you'll, to her son, you'll be coming to the wedding, won't you? Well, I was, don't I come to all of them? She says, you only missed the first. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that she's probably the female character in the movie with the most depth to her. Yeah. Yeah. But that's mainly just through her connections to the other characters. Yeah. It's like they had to explain why she spoils her son in order to explain why he's spoiled. I don't know why. It's kind of obvious, yeah. but but you'd be surprised that when Duke kind of blatantly just tells her that, yeah. oh, hey, I found out that your son is the one who just did this robbery. Ha 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 ha. You'd think she would have a little more of a reaction than just kind of being in a stupor or like, oh, no. Yeah. Nonsense. Or you think she would have done something like, or at least that would have broken her up with Duke or she would have turned to help her son or something like that. Yeah. Well, on that note, also with Jimmy, who can't apparently lie to save his life. (laughs) None of them can. Right. But I mean, he like she confronts him on it and he's like, how did you know? I mean, no, I didn't do that. Um, what do you mean? Who told you right, this It's, it's stuff? the old movie adage of saying, I didn't kill... Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
seriously now. I didn't really, I mean, who told you? I didn't that mean I did to do it. Well, oh, well, well, I didn't do it at all. <laughs> and, and like he kept almost trying to talk his way out of it and then kept giving himself away again. Like yeah. it wasn't enough for him to just have that initial reaction. Like, how did you know? I mean, no, of course I right. didn't. Who told you this? Yeah. Uh, who told you that we did it? Oh, I mean that. It's yeah, almost it's like, farcical in a way. Oh, yeah. Well, why don't we move on to Sam Harmon played by Dean Martin? who, much like Frank Sinatra, is just playing Frank Sinatra. Dean Martin is pretty much just playing Dean Martin. Dean Martin, yeah. yeah. He's a fun character, but again, that's that's more... What I like is that he's that... he has no motive to be in on this plot, and they actually play up on it, and that he actually wants to pull out, and is like, come on, guys, yeah. we shouldn't be doing this. And the only reason he stays is just so he's not abandoning his brothers. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, he's the one who actually points out the fact that, you guys, your plan is stupid. It's not going to work. It is the stupidest plan of all stupid plans. And yet, and stupidly, it with, works. Yeah, yeah and, and then he goes along with it anyway. I'm like, what? No. It's like, no, I can't do this. We can't do this. Okay, fine, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, and it's like basically then half of it is just him kind of crooning out love songs or just kind of being there as part of the ensemble. Though, you know, he has a good bit with Shirley MacLaine that we'll get to and... He was there to sing Ain't That a Kick in the Head five million times. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty yeah. much why he was there. It's like every other time we cut to Dean Martin, he's singing Ain't That a Kick in the Head. Which, that's a good song and all, and I like the song, but goddamn. Oh, and like, this, I, this film is nothing if not repetitive. Oh, yeah. I, like, I have in my notes over and over again, like, how many times are they doing this song? Oh, yeah, because, you know, we hadn't heard this song enough. They have a lot of musical numbers in a movie that's supposed to be about a heist. Well, they only have a couple of musical numbers that they sing a lot of they, times. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's also that really weird conversation before the heist where they're talking about what they're going to do with their money. And him and Jimmy are talking about going into politics. So that they can legalize women's like. Yeah, uh, I'm going to take away women. the women's rights to vote and make a slave out of them. You uh, know, while yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. is sitting there laughing at it. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, I, like, I kind of, oh, like, my jaw just drops at yeah. that. I mean, you know, they're just goofing around, but still, it's... No, yeah, I, I, I actually have... A... Political incorrectness of Mad Men era humor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like, for the time the movie was made, it's like, okay, but it still was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, and then there's a lot of money to make out of Indian reservations. Well, you think I'm going to appoint you? Mm. It's like, what? I mean, and this is something I was talking about with Evie of this film feels a lot like a Quentin Tarantino movie without the energy. I mean, like just these weird little things they'll randomly throw in or let's just have a random conversation about what we would do if we were in politics that has nothing to do with the story. And yet they're just rambling on about it for like three, four minutes. It feels like a Tarantino movie, but not in a fun way. Right. Yeah. I mean, because, like, you know, you watch Pulp Fiction where half of it is just them going off on tangents about Big Macs and other weird Royale little things. Royale with cheese. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like the Royale with cheese conversation of there's no reason for it to be here, but yet they're just killing, like, three minutes of time in a film that's already running on way too long. Right. Well, and then I have in my notes here that, like, you know, for as long as they take to try to do the introduction of all the characters, we really learn next to nothing about them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and move on to Josh Howard, played by Sammy Davis Jr. He's like the most likable character in the bunch. Yes. Oh, by far. There are several members of the Eleven who are just kind of down on the luck guys who do really need their money. Mm -hmm. And I like that this guy, he tried getting into the professional baseball leagues. But what I love is they play up the fact that Sammy Davis Jr. really did only have one eye. And yeah. he says there's not much room for a one-eyed third base player. So he had to become a garbage garbage man. It's like whenever you cut to the garbage trucks, that's like the only time you see black people in this movie. 
Yeah, right. what was that? Yeah, 1960. But the thing is, Sammy Davis Jr., come on. Right. I wish they had given him he a was, He was probably role. the only one out of the cast that I actually wanted to see wind up Get with the money. money. Right. Yeah. Especially during the end credit scene where it's like the people walking away from the funeral home as their credits play under them. And he's the last one there. Just yeah. broken. It's like, you feel so bad for him. You don't care about the other people, but for him, it's like, aw. Yeah, it was actually almost depressing, especially, and it, and it was part of what made, for me, like, the movie so right. confused. I would have loved just, to like, have had him be more of a central character. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, other, he has that great speech about how he, you know, he tried to go into baseball and he tried to do all this other stuff and then got stuck as a garbage man. And then after that, he's just kind of hanging around with the group. Other than driving the garbage truck, that's pretty much it. I wish that he had had a bigger part as opposed to Peter Lawford, who played Jimmy. Because when you compare Peter Lawford yeah, and Jimmy Davis Jr. It should have been more of a diametric thing of, you know, you got the rich kid with the silver spoon in his mouth and the poor black guy working a garbage truck. They could have played that more as a dynamic. Yeah. Of one of these people deserves this money and the other one doesn't. Exactly. I mean, and yeah. as I said, you know, they could have started this film with the heist and have the film play out as the team breaks down and they turn on each other and the money keeps changing hands. It would be like a post-heist film. It's like they spend so much time before the heist and then so much time after the heist and then so much time during the heist and yet nothing happens. Right. Exactly. I don't know. But, you know, granted, this was like one of the first major heist films around, so they, there wasn't really an established formula to play up on. It was through this that a lot of other films came afterwards. And so it's better. kind of understandable that they didn't really know what the hell they were doing. Right. It's kind of hard to say they aren't following the conventions of the genre when those conventions weren't there by, at this well, time. I mean, and, and that's okay that like they weren't doing, I guess, hitting on the right points isn't so much the point as it looking at this film as a whole. I'm not really sure what they wanted the focus of it to be. Mm. Because again, like you said, they spend almost no time at all during the actual heist it goes with really almost nothing happening they just kind of walk in and take the money it's a lot of the same thing happening which right i'll go ahead and i'll say it here the setup of the heist is five identical sequences of the same garbage truck to the same musical score pulling up to each hotel parking lot with the same frame shot. And then basically we watch people sneak around before they let the one guy into the electrical room. Then we move on to the next hotel and do the same exact thing. And then we, we every sign we got to see them spraying the infrared paint around. And that's only just to scope out the location. And then we have to go and hit every hotel again before the heist. And then the heist happens and it's done and over with and it's all in the garbage truck. And it's... yeah. By the way, since we're talking about this now, I guess like, Go ahead. the casinos that they're in have like no security at all. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. Each one has like one or two rent-a-cops who are too busy dealing with the crowd during the blackout. Right. They just go wherever the hell they want, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And nobody so much as gives them a second look. Yeah. And, and like the whole blackout thing, too, it's like the lights go out and nobody reacts. Well, it's like everyone's drunk and starts making out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, seriously, they actually happens. make a joke of that, of, oops, sorry, wrong girl. And then she blows out the candle and just kisses <laughs> I know, him some but more. It's, it's like they just go on as if almost nothing's happening. Right, you know? and nobody's going to notice that, oh, the doors just popped open. No one's going to go check the money. Nobody back in the rooms with the money is going to be like, why did the door just pop open? <laughs> it's like, no, they just light candles and go back to counting things. Yeah, they're just like, eh, whatever, sure. Like, what right. the hell? And then suddenly a flashlight appears and says, stick him up. It's like, well, show me your gun. <laughs> Nobody has a yeah. gun in this movie at all. And then the infrared paint. 
Oh, God. I don't, first of all, <laughs> spraying it on your shoes would only work for about five steps before you've pretty much soaked all of it into the carpets and it's thinned out to the point where it's not going to keep leaving a trail. Right. Yeah. Secondly, if it does keep leaving a trail, isn't it going to be like branching off to all the various other places that these people walk to during their day jobs? <laughs> so it's not really going to leave like a specific path. I mean, maybe why did... they were just doing it that one time and then they changed shoes. Just like I... paint arrows on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, that's all you have to do is paint arrows on the walls, the specific location. I mean, marking the door makes sense. But then also that they have to not only use special flashlights to well, light up the infrared paint. You don't even have to mark things. I mean, just draw a map. Well, but you, they are going to be in pitch black darkness. Oh, that's true. So That's what that was for. But still, having a set path to follow doesn't prevent you from bumping into people who are stumbling around in the dark blackout. And yeah. if all you can see is the paint, that's not going to stop you from knocking yourself out on a doorframe. Yeah. I mean, and they like have special infrared sunglasses that still don't work as night vision. It's just, it's so ridiculous. It doesn't even make, it, it, it's almost yeah. farcical. To say Maybe that again. it made sense back in 1960. It's almost comical, but they're not playing it for laughs. Yeah. Right. And they, they have to have their special shots of walking past the, the glowing footprints. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. I love when they have the shots of them with, like, you know, you see the infrared footprints as they're, like, leaving the casino. But you see it, like, a couple of times. And I'm like, movie, I got it the first time. Just can we move and on, And even please? then, when we see them in the darkness doing that stuff, they're not wearing the sunglasses and they're using regular flashlights. <laughs> yeah. It's only after they get the money that you see a couple of them wearing the glasses as they're making their escape. But it's like, well, then what was the point of the infrared thing to begin with? Right. And I think that's why I got confused as to what the point of it was, because you don't even see the footprints until they're done, effectively. Right. It's I don't I don't get yeah. it. It makes my brain hurt. This whole movie is yeah. just going, it, it's what? Well, let's let's get back to talking about the team here. Then uh, I, I know this guy isn't officially part of the main 11, but he was a major player. Uh, Spiros Asabos, played by Akim Tamirov, who was is that the, the guy main, who came up with? He was the mastermind who was always on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Which oh, that that became a tired joke the, after the first time they did it. Like, yeah, the first time they did it, it was already tired. He was very over-the-top and vaudevillian. It was... And the music was not helping him. Yeah, he was playing it as though it was a slapstick comedy, but he was, like, the only one playing it as though it was a slapstick comedy. Right. And so it didn't fit. Now, is that really his accent, or was he using that accent for the... I don't the know. Break? I mean, with the name Akim Tamirov, I would assume that that's probably his accent. But I don't know. I'm not that mm -hmm. familiar with his work outside of this. I do like the idea that he's always the one who comes up with plans and he's done all these major things before, but he never takes part in any of them himself. Well, he's mm -hmm. not allowed to. He, because... he can't because he's, right. uh, he's known. And that he can't step into Vegas because the other hoods know who he is. But it still it feels weird that they just have this outside guy being the one who comes up with the plan instead of the people within the group. Especially because well, you don't see him as the guy who would know that. And you never see him concocting the plan. It's just he already has it. Right. Yeah. You never see anybody concocting any plans at all in this movie. It's they, they've already got him all set up. So there's no unpredictability factor there. Yeah. Well, which is kind of weird, especially since they haven't by that point where the plans already like well and done. Mm -hmm. They still haven't confirmed that they're getting all the people that they need or that they can even do what they're trying to do. It's yeah. just that it all magically just works. Yeah. Yeah. Though so I do like the idea that you need 11 because 
you have one guy working on the inside at each casino, one guy hanging out to act as backup, and then the one electrician that's going from place to place to place. That actually makes a lot of logical sense as to why they have 11. Uh huh. Though why he isn't considered part of the 11 and it's not Ocean's 12, I don't know. Because he <laughs> is still a major player in, in the entire plot. He's just not physically there. Yeah. Like, I mean, in the uh, remake, they have... Ruben. Yeah, they have Elliot Gould's character is considered part of the Eleven, but he's still right. just yeah. the funder who works behind it. He's not even part of the planner. He's just, no, the, he's, he's he's just, just the financer. He's just been growing yeah. it. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we move on to Tony Bergdorf, played by Richard Conti, the one who dies. Okay, that I'm like, which one is he? <laughs> I'm like, is he yeah. the one with the kid? He's the middle-aged white man in a suit. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he probably has both the deepest motivation and probably the richest character arc. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But Um, at the same time, it's sort of like, of course he's dying because we need a cliche. And then what I love is that, you know, he's doing this entire thing to prepare his family for when he dies. And then he dies. And the rest of the team, instead of giving his entire share to his family, just takes that share and just gives them like 10,000 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. That the entire was, team uh, just turns on him and just is like, we're not giving your share to your family, the family that you were doing this for to begin with. That whole thing with him dying felt like such a non event. What would have been nice is if it threw a kink in the plans and it happened in the middle of the operation instead of yeah. just after everything is already done and said. Well, because then it doesn't matter that and he's dead. And then there's no trail left behind, so there's no threat to him being dead. And yet Duke Santos still randomly puts together the pieces that, oh, he's part of the 82nd. Yeah. But aside from maybe one or two lines about how Danny Ocean feels bad about it, Mm -hmm. there's almost no reaction from the rest of the team that he's dead. Yeah. They just kind of shrug it off. I love when they say that Danny's taking it really hard. And I'm like, is he? Well, then why aren't you giving his wife the full share? Yeah, well, because but they do have that exchange of dialogue, and I'm just like, but it doesn't seem like he's taking it very hard. Yeah. Well, because he's I'm not like, really acting any different. Right. Yeah. It's like Sinatra's just waiting for the take to be over so he can go hit the pool. Right. Yeah. What I also love is that he's supposed to be the master electrician, and yet they've already worked out ahead of time what all needs to be done to the electrical box and the electrical connections. Right. They just need a guy to do it. It's like they're not just bringing him in to say, look at this and tell us what needs to be done. It's like, here, come in. This is exactly what you need to do. And yet he still needs to have time to go to each hotel to already look at the connections in order to figure out even more of what to do. I, it, <laughs> this is so badly plotted. For the plan to already have like been cooked up completely and be foolproof and all that stuff. You would think like they, they would have been in there and looked at all this stuff to begin with. Exactly. They do a lot of stuff after that whole thing where it's like the plan's already done yeah and then they have to make sure it works i guess if you didn't look at it with a master electrician already with you to begin with then how do you know all this info that you're giving to the master electrician exactly and they've already clearly shown that the electrical rooms are pretty easy to get into yeah you just sneak behind someone's back and drop a chip on the ground and that's it <laughs> and then Sammy Davis Jr. also already has keys made to all of the various rooms, despite the fact that he's not the one who actually works in any of the hotels. How does he yeah. have the keys that he's giving around everybody? Right. He's Sammy well, Davis and I, and Jr., that's how. I love that, that. Maybe somebody threw him away by accident. I can't remember. Is it Danny Ocean that throws the chip? It's like very obviously, like, is yeah. behind the guy and just, yeah. like, kind of just does this rolls really. It in front of him, yeah. 
dramatic roll and like the guard kind of just watches it roll by and doesn't like and goes look over yeah. him. Yeah, he doesn't look to see what? That would have been a great bit if he tries to roll it to distract the guard and the guard just turns to look at him. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? This really awkward moment there. Or he's standing. actually an honest guard and is like, who dropped their chip? Is this yours, sir? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would have just been a great little twist there. To, I mean, if you're going to throw in weird little random comedy moments, do stuff like that. Don't have Frank Sinatra doing a random handkerchief magic trick. Right. For oh. no reason that... Because he doesn't, he's not a magician. Or talking about women slaves. <laughs> or if he's going to do that, have him be a stage magician who's going to be performing at one of the casinos and tie that into the plot. Exactly. And with Tony, I'm like, they kind of luck out that he's sick. Because if he wasn't sick, he wouldn't have gone along with the plan and they were kind of screwed. Yeah. Yeah, he's like the only essential member of this group and all the others are just kind of doing the same thing. Right. Him and the guy driving the garbage truck are like the only really key players in the group. Well, yeah. yeah and like, that's, it's kind of. Well, and also with... half of them do have jobs in the casinos, but they're not really doing anything that drastically important, except for Dean. Yeah. It's one of those things that you get the feeling they could, they could have picked anybody off the street to do these jobs. But none of them could have crooned out, ain't that a kick in the head as well. <laughs> you don't know. They might have. Yeah. Bing Crosby's looking for a job. <laughs> Well, considering the internet has taught us that there are homeless people who can sing very well, they could have probably just found a homeless guy to do it. That would have been great in the Ocean's Eleven remake, a guy on stage singing Chocolate Rain. (laughs) 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 Oh, all right. So why don't we move on to Roger Corneal, played by Henry Silva. Another. I don't know which one that is. He was was the younger white man in a suit. I I don't know which one he is. He was the one who was kind of going around in the beginning trying to find everybody. The one who would always place the long distance phone calls and he's okay, the, he's the one who goes to the pet shop and finds out that you're in jail. He's the one he's got this kind of odd bony face. Does he look kind of like Frank Sinatra, but not quite? No, he's the one who's kinda of taller and lankier and kinda of has very prominent cheekbones. He kinda of, kinda of looks slightly Native American or slightly I mean if in fact in a lot of movies back then he would either play the Asian guy or the Native American guy. We'll see him playing the Asian guy in Manchurian candidate here next month. Oh, okay. He was a good yeah, friend I of no Frank's. He has a very distinctive uh, look to him, but there was nothing to his character. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, like, I can't even, I didn't have a, a face connected to the name. At the beginning, when you're watching this, you're almost thinking he's kind of going to be like the Brad Pitt character because he's the one who's going around and recruiting the various people and tracking them down. But then, then it's no. like, then other people pick up yeah, that Yeah, except afterwards. he's not the only one doing that. So well, He was at first, but then it passed on to other people. Right. Yeah. And he's also a really bad actor. <laughs> that, that doesn't help at all. He though. plays good villains, but this is like one of the few roles where he, he either doesn't play the ethnic character or the villain. Because as I said, he would always play either Asian people or Native Americans. He has an odd career. Well, that's and how he's they used totally to cast. forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing well, to it. I paid attention. I'm like, okay, they've given us a reason for why everyone else isn't on this plot. They never once give a reason for him. He's just there. In the beginning of the movie, he's already a part of the plan. And we never really find out anything more beyond that. Right. Maybe he's just like the proxy for Spiros. That's the only one. I I don't, I don't. (laughs) Well, actually, if you want the proxy for Spiros, you get Joey Bishop, who is the character Mushy O'Connor's. I don't know which one that is either. (laughs) He was the middle-aged white man in a polo shirt. (laughs) Oh, okay. He was the one who was with Spiros from the beginning. Oh, okay. Or every time you'd see Spiros, Joey Bishop is there and like doing the little building the card castle with them. And right. 
Oh, that's the guy. He's another <laughs> character that we never find out anything about. He's just there. Yeah. He's just a part of the group. Well, I think I texted you about this yesterday where you only get to really know five of the 11. Because you get to know Danny, Jimmy, Sam, Josh, and Tony. And those are the only ones that you really get to know. And then there's Vince, played by Buddy Lester, the guy who's working as the bouncer at the club where his wife is a dancer. Yeah. Which... Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the guy with the scar on the side of his face. Mm -hmm. And his main thing is that he wants to be able to make a living so his wife doesn't have to keep being an exotic dancer. Yeah. And he also wants to get earnings so he can become a film producer because that completely ties into what he said before. And being a film producer, there's absolutely no way that you can lose money on that. Right. Especially <laughs> if all you have is like $1 million. Yeah. Even back then, a film like Ocean's Eleven cost about a million dollars to make. Yeah. So if you do one film and it's a flop, you're out of money. Exactly. It's... And if that one movie that he made happened to be Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> it would become a classic that no one can understand why it's a classic. Yeah. This is, Well, I think that Ocean's Eleven... The reason it is is pretty much the Rat Pack. Right. That's, right. Like, I know all of us when we're talking about it in our, like, would we recommend it or not? And we don't want to say anything bad about it because it's the Rat Pack, but really it's not a good movie. No. It's and in fact, most of the Rat Pack movies aren't good movies. I've seen Four for yeah. Texas, which is a terrible movie. I've seen Robin and the Seven Hoods, which is a terrible movie. I haven't seen Sargent's Three yet, but I hear it's not that good of a movie. It was basically them hanging out on set together and having fun off camera. And then it's like, okay, we got to do a take. And then they go and goof off some more. There was one movie with it's Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Shirley MacLaine called Some Came Running. Okay, see, I haven't seen that one. See, that's not technically a Rat Pack movie, though. It's just Frank or, and Dean? It's Frank and Dean. Well, Shirley was part of the Rat Pack, apparently, too. She was like their little mascot. Then why is Angie Dickinson here and Shirley MacLaine doesn't have a bigger role? Because I'm guessing Shirley had other things to do that didn't suck. She was probably visiting the set for a day. Yeah. And they just needed a girl that was drunk. And so they're like, Shirley. Yeah, let's go ahead and just mention Shirley McLean, who is in one scene where she's drunk out of her gourd. And she rocks that scene. Oh, yeah. That was an awesome scene. <laughs> it's like this dialogue doesn't feel like it's written for someone who's acting this drunk and yet she's playing it so beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> When she left, I was like, come back, come you back. You gotta hate how much of a bitch her friend is for just abandoning her like that. When I It's like, know. you can make it back to the room by yourself, can't you? And she, like, can't even stand up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, like, can't even pick up her own key. Yeah. Although I, I love how, like, that whole thing became, like, this big deal that it was about to ruin the plot because they couldn't get her out of there. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, like, and like, so drunk, it's not like she's gonna know. It's like he can't just walk past her. Right. She's going to completely rat him out and ruin the operation. That's how bad the security is in that casino, <laughs> that a drunk girl and a jealous mistress are the biggest threats to the plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's like the cops. I mean, there was that one bit where he's in that room earlier and the cops come to check the door. And it's like it's cops in a car driving, making the rounds like every, what, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And, and it's a locked screen door. <laughs> it's a screen door. <laughs> Because nobody can break through a screen door. <laughs> oh. Oy vey. Yeah. Somebody didn't think things through in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this can't... Well, the thing, I'm wondering if some of it was just almost a fantasy aspect to it because they couldn't show, like, because I doubt Las Vegas back then was actually... Well, I mean, here's the thing is they actually did shoot a lot of this at the actual casinos because, you know, Frank and Dean were, like, headlining acts at a lot of the casinos. 
And it's like, why did all these major casinos agree to do a film that shows just how crappy their security is and show them getting boosted? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe I have to, that's a, that's a great promotion. Actually, for I, I kind of have to wonder like how many robbery attempts were made when this movie came out. Yeah. Right. Wouldn't that be great if this entire film were like that montage sequence in the remake where it's like, yes. we got all the money and we're running out. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and Sammy's the only one who gets away. Yes, I would have yes. loved that. Because he has his that bulletproof awesome. garbage truck. Awesome. <laughs> I think we just no, wanted the movie to be like, about Sammy. They, they would have spent money in the, in the garbage truck, ran, got shot. Then the police would turn around and go like, oh, black guy in a garbage truck. Move along. <laughs> Nothing to see here. But no, that would be the perfect spot to end on the song EO11. Of mm-hmm. all of them are dead and bleeding in the street, and he's the only one driving away. EO11. Oh, man. <laughs> that would have been an awesome ending. That would have been the ending you would do if Tarantino actually did make this movie. And then, well, we still got two more members of the 11 here. I don't know who they are. <laughs> we have Peter Reimer, played by Norman Fell, who was the landlord on Three's Company. I didn't watch that show. That was before Don Knotts took over. Is he? He actually lost out to Don Knotts eventually. Oh no! He's the one who wants to have money just to show that he has money, and that's all we ever know about his character, ever. He's the yeah. one who shows up like fifty minutes in when they're all together and they're about to talk about the plan. And oh look, there's this other guy who just happens to be here. Is he the cowboy? No, and then the cowboy shows up, and that's oh, Lewis okay. Jackson, played by Clem Harvey, the last member of our team. Did he do anything? I mean, like, as far as the actual, like, what did he do in the actual? He was just another one of the guys who was there to bag up the money in the end. But he didn't really add anything. It was like, just we got to have a cowboy just to add some extra flair to it. And he's (laughs) from Utah. So let's make a bunch of Mormon and jokes about him having multiple wives. Yeah. For no reason. We were never given a motive for why he joined the group. And then there's like this, he has a broken arm. But instead of playing that into the movie, it's like three minutes later, he just takes out the cast and says, I'm okay. <laughs> Kidding. I love when it's like him and some cop are standing outside. Um, yeah, where they turn on the lights. It's the cowboy and the cop. It's like, <gasps> yeah. And the thing is, but it's not really even a door. It's like it slides open. I'm like, why didn't they just slide it open and walk in? Well, you don't want to just walk into someone's house. You're not, you ring the doorbell. But they didn't even ring the doorbell, did they? I thought they did. They got where they got buzzed on the intercom. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because um, that was the whole thing because Spiros freaked out because there were cops at the door. See, and then that's the thing is Spiros, he has this whole freak out over every little thing. And yet yeah. we, we never get a reaction from him when the money actually does burn. Yeah. The last we ever see of him is when he's, isn't it when he's basking in the pool, they, they made off with all the money? Yeah. That's the last yeah. we see of him is he's, he's beaming over the fact that they won, that they got all the money. You set up that he always has an over-the-top reaction to everything, and then the one thing that he should actually have a reaction towards, we never see him. It's weird. His head probably exploded. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what it was. His heart leapt out of his mouth, looked at him, and face-palmed. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, and then that covers the entire team from the original, which... The majority of whom we didn't remember. <laughs> right. It's like... All of them were middle-aged white guys in suits, except for the cowboy well, and the I black I was man. trying to keep a running like tally of who everybody was, and I think even doing that, I only got like five or six names down. Right. I actually yeah. had to do Google image searches just to be like, okay, who was this person? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the team in the remake then. Thank God. Well, why don't we start with Rusty then, played by Brad Pitt. 
He's so effing cool. <laughs> he is. What I love is that he is in every way Danny Ocean's partner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even to the point where they're like a married couple of times. Yeah. The, the well, they, that they have. Right. Yeah. It's awesome. I love like the scene where um, Danny is talking to him like, okay, we got 10. That should be enough. Right. And then he like just doesn't even say anything. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think, think that's, that's enough. enough. Yeah. Maybe we should get 11. Yeah. We should get 11. And like, yeah. Rusty's it's, it's just such a married there. couple thing. Yeah. He's yeah. just sitting there. Yeah. What I love is that he is not obviously as good of a strategic planner as Danny is, but he's much more level-headed. He's more the realist and Danny is more the dreamer. Yeah. Yeah. And yet they kind of balance each other out perfectly. Plus he's got all the connections. Yeah. And, and he knows everybody. He knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. Mm-hmm. And they like went out of their way to make a point of like almost every scene he's in, like at least the opening of that scene, he's eating something. Yes. Right. I love that. I don't know why I love it, but it's fucking hilarious. And I love how there's so many great reveals of him. Like, we'll get to the character of Saul here in a minute. But when Saul dies and they bring in a doctor, it's Brad Pitt. Or when, they, when, they, when the SWAT team is walking out of the building, he flips up his helmet. It's Brad Pitt. Okay, with the, the SWAT guy, I kind of had an idea that that was him because it sounded like a really gruff sounding Brad Pitt. Yeah. yeah. It's Brad Pitt doing his Batman voice. Right. Yeah. I know, but it was still just a fun thing of Brad oh, God, Pitt yeah. just keeps popping up. Well, he's kind of the face of the team. Yeah. Him and the two brothers are like the ones who just keep popping up. <laughs> no, I, I really like the Brad Picker. And he's like always there right where Danny needs him to be. Right. He's the first person that Danny seeks out. When he needs something done, go to Rusty first. Yeah. If he can't do it, he'll know someone who can. All right. Then why don't we go to a Linus Caldwell played by Matt Damon, who's like the rookie of the group. Mm-hmm. Because they knew his dad, who was a great pickpocket and con man. And, and he yeah, came well, on they, that recommendation. Yeah. Well, they didn't even know it was his son at first. Yeah. Though I do love the introduction to him where he picks someone's pocket and then Danny picks his pocket and yeah. leaves a business card behind. Mm-hmm. I love how he's almost supposed to be kind of like the, the rookie Danny in training. He's, he's actually kind of the audience proxy. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's and what he's also say. kind of supposed to be like what Danny was like, like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But he's the one who doesn't know what's going on. Most of the time, he's the one that everything is kind of brand new to him because he's mm -hmm. so new to the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And then I love that bit how about how he just starts suddenly following Danny around for several scenes. And yeah. we don't entirely know why until we find out that, oh, Rusty told him to. Right. But we get a payoff for that. It's not just like a thing that happens and then there's right. no reason for it. Everything in this film happens for a reason. I love it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a payoff for everything. Mm -hmm. And I even love how he can still be a con man and play a character and go in and pretend to be the, uh, what was it, the... the Sheldon Willis. The Nevada, Nevada Gaming, Gaming Commission. Commission. The Nevada Gaming Commission guy, yeah. And pretend to be a casually racist. Yeah, and like, <laughs> as uh, for how nervous and how unsure of himself he is, he he's still really good yeah. at what mm -hmm. he's doing. He's the reason that they picked him. And then you have that great scene where they tell him to stay in the van, and he doesn't stay in the van, and he almost screws everything up. Yeah. Yeah. So I just love that shot of just they're looking at the building and then suddenly, oh, he runs by and then a whole bunch of guards run by. <laughs> and then it's like, OK, we got to get back or, or they back up so that he can jump into the back. But then he and jumps then he, onto the front. Yeah, falls <laughs> off the front. Yeah. And then he ends up getting the one guy's hand broken. I love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These characters are making mistakes and there's consequences for the mistakes, but they still are able to think around them. Right. Yeah, they, it's not they, like things just magically work out because it happens. This is exactly what we're going to do, and we do it exactly that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if something I mean, doesn't they, work out, we're screwed. Yeah. 
but they, I mean, they do have to change the plan to make it work, but they change the plan. I mean, even though they don't let us know that right away. And that's what's great too, is that we see them changing the plan, but we don't always know how they're going to change it. And even then we don't know of certain surprises that they're going to pull on us. And I'm going to go ahead and move us to Saul Bloom played by Carl Reiner. Awesome. What I loved about him is they played up his health problems and his age. And you almost think, you see, I I watched the original film shortly before I first watched this one way Uh back when this remake first came out. And Uh I thought they're redoing the Tony character of he's the one who's going to die, isn't he? Oh, yeah. First time. Yeah. First time I watched it, I was kind of freaked out there because it was like, oh, my God, he died. And especially since I had that emphasis of having seen the original film, I thought they were just recreating that. And they do make it look like he's getting worked up over the kink in the Mm -hmm. plan then suddenly comes up there. And that's why he's freaking out and has a heart attack. Exactly. And they make you think that this is really happening. And then they reveal that, oh, no, it was all part of the plan. When (laughs) Brad Pitt comes in as like a 70s soap opera doctor, (laughs) take off the glasses. This man is dead. I love Saul because I'm almost thinking that he's playing that whole thing like when he's tying his shoes and he gets up and he can't quite and he has to like sit back down Mm because I guess head rush. I think that's Saul going through his process. Oh, true. Of he's actually working out the details of how to do the performance. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had never thought of that before. That's actually perfect. Yeah, because I hadn't either, but I really like that idea. Yeah, I'm going to have to definitely watch for that next time I watch it. Yeah, because you look at it and all the little things that he does. I'm like... I think that's part of his process is he's just staying in character. See, Mm. I thought it was him having an ulcer. (laughs) Yeah, of they were trying to play it up as though it was really happening. But no, that actually makes a lot of sense that he's rehearsing. Yeah, that does make sense, especially for like what his character is doing. Especially since he's shown that he takes everything so seriously, too. Right. Because even when he's doing the accent, he's staying in character until they tell him Yeah, I love that he was in character while they're like before the thing even started and they actually yell at him for it. Yeah, so no, that makes a lot of sense that the illness is even played in character. Good job picking up on that, Evie. Yay, me! I like the contrast that they have where like you have Linus who is brand new to this and then you have Saul who's been in this forever and the way that they actually say that this was kind of the point of the original that it, this is kind of supposed to be his last job even mm-hmm. though mm-hmm. they make sequels and it's not but right yeah instead of he was going to retire next week and then he dies yeah <laughs> I, okay i love the fact that kind of jumping ahead a little teeny bit but they're the last it's saul and linus that are the last two at the fountain at the end yeah, yeah the young and the old yeah i love that Though technically, I I almost think the two brothers are younger than Linus even, but still, they're more experienced. They're more experienced than he is, yeah. Yeah. They're older in the sense that they've been doing what they've been doing for longer. Well, why don't we go ahead and talk about the Malloy twins? (laughs) They're hilarious. Oh my god. I love how you always think these are the two guys who are going to screw everything up because they're always at each other. Yeah. And yet, when they're required to do something, they do it. Yeah, Yeah. when it goes down to the wire, they're on it. I love that a good half of their jobs involve them arguing. Yeah. Like that's what their actual jobs are, is staging an argument. Yeah, the balloon argument was so great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my balloons. You're going to make my balloons. <laughs> I think the circus animals thing that he says at the end, I think Casey Affleck literally forgot his line. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, that does not sound. You can tell of any character that's half improvised, it's got to be these two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I love the bit where they're at the car dealership and they're just bouncing on the van. (laughs) (laughs) I love um, when they're in the van with Linus stuck in there with them, how they... I love how they just do those time cuts on Linus of he's just been sitting there for minute after minute of this. And they're driving him nuts. Yes. Yeah. I'm not touching you. I'm not... Stop touching. I'm not touching you. (laughs) 
Yeah, and 20 questions, 20 questions. Yeah, 18, evil Knievel. They're so immature, but they are still professional. They still get the job done when you, when you need them to do it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, and our, our introduction to them is them staging a, a race between a remote-controlled car and a real car. The introduction car. to them is, is them smashing things just to get one up one another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, Okay, Scott can laugh in that. Uh, I used to have that laugh. <laughs> so it was like the best laugh ever. I love that laugh. Yes. And what I loved about that scene is you almost get the sense that this is just going to be like a one-off thing of just, oh, they're messing around with the remote control cars and all that stuff. But then that actually pays off in the end when they have the remote control van that they use to drive mm-hmm. away. Yeah. I just love that. It's just, I've seen this movie before and yet they, they're still catching me by a surprise with things. I love when they do that reveal that it is a remote control van, how the guy opens the door and, and then the like the camera, camera turns to look, like, turns like, to look at, at him. him. Oh, that was <laughs> such a great moment. And then I love how when they blow up the money, it's actually just flyers for a brothel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not for a brothel, but hookers. Like uh, when you go to Vegas, oh, they actually flyer you can for get, escorts. Yeah. Escorts. Or actually, I think some of them quite blatantly, they're hookers. Yeah. That's what they call them in the movie when they reveal that they're the flyers. Yeah. All right. Well, when we talk about Ruben Tishkoff, played by Elliot Gould. Oh, I my love God, that our introduction him. to him is him wearing exactly what we never want to see Elliot Gould wear. A <laughs> swimsuit. So awesome. The chest hair and the, that sweater like, he was wearing. Man. It's the chest hair. I know. That was a joke. <laughs> yes, I got the joke right now. Shut up. But what I love is that he's essentially the Terry Benedict of the past generation. Mm-hmm. The Terry right. has come in and stolen all of his ground and in fact blows up his hotel partway right. through yep. the movie. But yeah, I, I love that they have a money man and they pretty much just admit that he's a money man, nothing more. And so he's not right. really involved in any other way. Yeah. He's just there to wisecrack at all of them while they're trying to do the actual work. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, Frank Catton played by Bernie Mac. He was awesome. I love Bernie yeah. Mac. I love that they got a comedian to play the role, and Bernie Mac actually is really a really good dramatic actor. That he he, he wasn't he can used play it as serious and he can top. make you giggle. He, he, right. I mean, perfect. he had some funny moments, but they weren't comedian funny moments. They were like he wasn't spending the whole time being a comedian. He was spending the whole time actually playing the character. Yeah. As opposed to like if you had Robin Williams playing that role, it would be like he would just yeah. be being a comedian the entire time. Okay, I, I'm actually imagining Robin Williams in that role, and it's taking me to a very dark place. <laughs> I do know oh, that handshake scene would have been interesting. Oh, uh, I love when he does that, and he's like oh. brushing that guy's hand, and yet talking about how amazing and delicate your hands are. Yeah. <laughs> and he's being so polite to him too, while crushing his hand. Yeah, But at the same time, you almost feel like, maybe this is just me, that he was like two seconds away from you got a pretty mouth. (laughs) And then I also love the bit where, I'm trying to remember, did they reveal Matt Damon as the Gaming Commission guy before they took him away from the table? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it's Benedict that says we should maybe take this off the floor. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Because that would have been a great surprise reveal if he gets taken off the ground and it's like, oh, he's been caught. And it's like, Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a nice twist. Well, but, no, because yeah. they already really set that up. Yeah, like, that's true. In the actual hotel room where they're trying to get Linus ready for it. Yeah. They kind of already had the whole thing set up. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I freaking love that scene, though, between um, Frank and Linus. When Linus is talking to um, Benedict, and he's just like, you know that uh, the Nevada Gaming Commission have always supported the hiring of coloreds. And then he just runs. Oh, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear Jesus. Yeah. 
And he just runs. Well, because like, yeah. he has he has that moment where he's like, "Oh shit, I really said that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so perfectly staged. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and what I love though, the entire scene is Andy Garcia. He's never looking at Bernie Mac. He's just always watching Linus. Yeah, mm-hmm. the entire time. Yeah. It, it, just an odd little detail. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's almost as though the Bernie Mac character doesn't hold any importance to him. He just wants to get deal with this gaming commissioner, give him all his attention so that he doesn't find me. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, he's also kind of... He and tests he's studying Linus. him, too. Yeah. Right. And Linus cons him perfectly. Right. He kind of tests him out on their way back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so why don't we talk about Livingston Dell, played by Eddie Jemison, the the hacker and computer expert. I love he sweats off the map. Yes, <laughs> he writes the map on his hand and then accidentally sweats it off. And then he walks off and then walks back. Yeah. <laughs> it's an old joke, but it works. Plus, well, we did like, get the line it's... of Chope is very soothing. Yeah. yeah. What did they say? Well, well, but like his in, his introduction is them, his, what Danny Ocean's asked, like, well, how are his nerves? And, uh, and he's, he's and getting tied up in the dog leash. Rusty's like, yeah. not so bad as you'd notice. Yeah. And then he's just like, do you see me taking your gun out of your holster and just waving it around? Yeah. <laughs> and then we have Basher Tar, played by Don Cheadle. Oh, Basher. People have given him so much crap over his accent. I love it. I love his accent. I thought for like until I saw him in another movie and actually like went and looked it up. My friend and I, we thought for the longest time he was actually a Brit. Oh, people took him to task over this accent. Really? I loved it. I know. I thought it was great. I mean, it was so over the top. Oh, yeah. But I love how he's concocting his own slang. Like we're (laughs) in Barney now. Barney rubble, trouble. (laughs) Yeah. I just love that scene where he just walks into the room covered head to show and shit. Yeah, and everyone's just kind of trying not to react. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and he I, actually I, says we're in deep shit. I just love that great moment where he's watching the building explode on TV yes. instead of watching it through the window right yeah. behind him. Yeah. I love that where it's like it's he just kind of stops just like, his work and just is like watching in awe and he's then he's mesmerized by it instead of turn around, dude. You can see <laughs> yeah, right behind you. And then it goes to crap, and I love how it actually screws up the plan for a bit there until he then gets the EMP device. I love when he sets off the EMP device. He takes that moment to cover his nuts. (laughs) He's kind of facing away and covered his balls. And I also love the introduction to his character where we see him in the middle of the other bank heist where he does that great blow of the vault door and then walks in and sets off the alarm. And then he's like, you had one job to do. Yeah. And by the way, the criminal is yelling at his director, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then I just love how Brad Pitt shows up as a cop to take him away. And then Riggs. Find Riggs. Yeah. Find Riggs. Who? Find him. Find him. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure that's a reference to uh, Riggs and Murtaugh from... uh, (laughs) Well, it's like every cop station has a Riggs, I guess. Yeah. They should say, find Johnson. Who? <laughs> Officer Johnson reporting for duty. Yeah. And then finally, the last member of the group, the amazing Yen, played by Shao Bukin. What I love about him is that he's always speaking in Chinese and everyone else is speaking in English, and yet they uh-huh. all seem to understand each other. No, well, the it, only one that does is Rusty. Is Rusty. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Rusty's yeah. the only one who understands him. Yeah. It's not as clear in Ocean's Eleven as it is in the later movies that he's the one doing all the translating. Okay. They spoiled that joke in the sequels. I just love that he just knows what they're talking about. Yeah. You don't even need the translating. Just make that the joke. (laughs) That he doesn't speak English and they don't speak Chinese, and yet they all get along. (laughs) I love how they try to create some drama with, oh, he broke his hand. Yeah. And they don't really do anything with it, except, oh, then he gets the bandage caught in the door. Yeah. 
And it's like he can't just tear the bandage like he does like a minute yeah. later. Well, it's, the well, thing is they're almost trying to make it like, oh, it needs to be a little bit because well, it can't be so easy. Yeah, that was right. a bit that felt almost a little forced to me. I do like that he overjumps yes. that jump. And I also do love their moment where it's like, oh, the battery's dead <laughs> in the remote. And as soon as they put yeah. it in, boom. Yeah, they have all the tension building up during their countdown. And then it's like the, click, the actual click, explosion click, click. is <laughs> just without any warning. Yeah. I love that you take your eye off the ball for what even one second, bam. Yeah. <laughs> and they duck. I love the fact that they duck too, because they weren't expecting it. Yeah. So why don't we? Well, we've already pretty much covered the heist in the original, and I guess we've kind of covered the heist in the remake. Anything else we want to add about the heist for either one? Just the heist itself. Mm, I'm trying to think here. I, I think, think we've we- kind of covered the twist with all the characters. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. I mean, what I do love is that it's the entire idea of you're going to give us half your money or we'll destroy it all. That was really clever. And then yeah. he's still, that's still not good enough for him because he's so ruthless. We still got to bring the cops in and follow the van. And yet they still plan for that. And so they screw over with it. Yeah. I love at the end, though, where he's just, you can't even tell, is he really realizing what it is they just did and how they got the money? Or is he literally just brain freezing? Yeah. He looks like he's blue screening there. What, when he's in the vault there in the yeah, fire shell song? And they now. got away with all the money, and he's just suddenly like, what? Yeah. <laughs> You'd think that he's realizing the SWAT team brought it out, but then it's like he's just, they broke him. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I guess he's, he's not used to having something like that happen. Yeah. Uh, it, well, because you can, he's kind of trying to work out exactly how they did everything the entire time. They outdid mm-hmm. his brain. Yeah, he's trying. He's trying to work it out, and when he can't, he, he kind of, he just kind of yeah. freezes. I do love the shot of Saul huffing. Is there stuff in him in this in the SWAT yeah. team armor? <laughs> I love as he's coming down, and he's not quite going that fast as everyone else. <laughs> I love him. He's awesome. Oh, I do Saul. like. I, I have to say, with rules. the heist in the remake. One of the things I really love about the movie is that they. I mean, obviously, everything they're doing is really difficult, but it all feels believable. It's, they don't really do anything that's too ridiculous, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go into the fact that, like, you know, so much of this stuff wouldn't work the way they do it. But at the same time, it's like, at the very least... You buy into it when you're watching the, the movie. The only part exactly. that I had a problem with in the remake was the fancy harness suits with the magnetic cord things. I mean, that felt a little too Mission Impossible for me. But you have to remember Ruben was bankrolling them, so... I know, it felt like that was just one step just a little further over the top. I'd much rather have them do that than actually try to maneuver around the beams. No, no, I know, but it's just they could have made it look a little more low-tech. Yeah, I I guess. And even just kind of keep them in their suits. You don't even need to have the fancy harness vests and everything like that. But damn it, they're professionals, okay? I mean, but I do love how... So much of this planning of we can get Yen into the vault in the thing, but they set the briefcase on top of the, the hat. Yeah, yeah, and that almost completely screws over everything. Right. Yeah, I really do like that there were a lot of places where things could go wrong and almost do yeah. in this And one. even then they have to change their plan on the fly. Right. As opposed to the original where everything goes without a hitch and right. there's really nothing to worry about as far as that goes. I mean, there's no tension at all for right. the original. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, why don't we just take a moment to talk about the overall um, direction, the overall filmmaking quality and style of the... Let's start with the original. I think the original is... It's a finely made film. 
there's nothing really particularly good or bad about the direction of it. I mean, everything's staged nice and all that stuff. It just has those terrible pace problems, and the script has so many story problems. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. Lewis Milestone was a pretty legendary director since the silent era of film, and this was kind of like one of his last big hits. Right. I think he did this, and then he did um, Mutiny on the Bounty. Which is also a pretty big film. There's not really any problems with like any of the shots or the setting ups of the scenes. It's just that the entire thing is bogged down by the fact that nothing is going on. Right. Yeah. And then there's also weird bits like uh, we have to have that shot of the five hotel signs superimposed alongside each other just so we can see them all go off at the same time. Yeah. And then like the random shot of the five trash bins at the same time. Yeah. It's not that it's bad. It's just. Why isn't he doing stylistic stuff like that throughout the film to keep it interesting instead of just like those couple of moments? I don't think even that would have saved the movie, though, to be honest. They they would have had to do like a complete script overhaul for it to work. Yeah. And this script went through four writers. So I'd love to see what it originally was, because from what I hear, Frank Sinatra, he was kind of like Edward Norton back in the day of he would completely change everything. He had his own stable of writers that he would always kind of bring with him that would kind of change everything. Wait, Billy Wilder did an uncredited rewrite on it, didn't he? Did he? Well, I'm guessing he didn't do the final one. Okay, because, yeah, I'm just on IMDb right now, and it says that he did an uncredited rewrite. And I'm just like, holy crap. I'm guessing it wasn't the final draft, because Billy Wilder writes really good scripts. (laughs) (laughs) And Charles Lederer, too. He he wrote a lot of great films for Howard Hawks, so he's a fantastic writer. So I'm I'm not entirely sure where to put the blame on this one because, you know, with Billy Wilder, you don't even know who all worked behind the scenes uncredited on this thing. Yeah. It just, it's, I don't know what happened. (laughs) I don't even know if they started with a good script and made it bad or if they just never had a good one to begin with. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, when you go through that many writers, I guess you can't really. Right. I mean, the remake had that one draft done by Scott Corwin, which kind of sucked. So they just pretty much tossed it and Ted Griffin rewrote it from scratch. And they pretty much stuck with Ted Griffin. So... It's not like they went through a whole ton of different writers. And what I love about Soderbergh is that he's actually a good writer in his own right, so he can fix things if they need to be fixed. And also he likes to do a lot of improv on set. And you see the script, like, it all just seems to work, and the cast seem to be having fun. Everything is just so meticulous in the remake. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's still meticulous, but with room to play. Well, I like that with the remake for having the size of the cast that it does, there aren't any of the characters that overpower any of the others, really. That goes both to the acting and to the screenwriting, I think, there, that you don't have, like, five characters, for example, like you do in the original, that are taking the entire movie and the others are just completely forgettable. You have everybody having screen time and having very distinct characters that you don't, there's no confusion about who's who. Well, what's interesting is, basically, you know, Saul, Linus, Danny, and Rusty do kind of stand above the rest of the ensemble, but they still blend in nicely. There's still a great melding of everybody. Yeah, exactly. Everybody still contributes. Right. You don't lose characters in the... Thing, in the After the heist in the original film, you don't see everyone together again until the funeral. Right. Exactly, yeah. It's just they go their own separate ways and then come back together. Well, and then There's when they break into the funeral. There's that scene in the funeral where they're all kind of like looking behind them when yeah. uh, Jimmy's stepdad to be comes in, and I'm just like, you guys are so not stealth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yeah. like the least stealth thing. I'm Why like, would they leave a fucking money band behind? Why wouldn't they have taken the money band off the cash first? Well, not, not only that, what Why are they the... taking the money band off, is what I want to know. 
if it's an identifiable thing, you can just take it off and replace it with like rubber bands. Something that if it falls off, it's not going to instantly be identifiable. I want to know what made them think it was a good idea to put all this money into the coffin because there was no chance anybody, you know, would crack that thing open. Well, usually, well, it depends on the funeral service. They didn't know for a fact it was closed coffin. Yeah, and well, the other thing, too, is that they're cremating his body during the service, and you usually wait until after the service to do the cremation. Yeah, you do the memorial, and then you do that. You don't even really do a service out of the cremation. That just happens on its own. Yeah, it makes no sense. There's no body or anything. And then why did they get the local legionnaires or something like that to carry the coffin to the place where it's already at, where you're going to burn it? Yeah. What was the point of that? it, It made no sense. Initially, I was going to be like, well, wouldn't somebody notice the change in weight to the coffin? But then I realized that, well, Sammy Javis is carrying all the money by himself at one point. So it's... Right. He's taking off and taking the money with him. That would have been great if he just kept driving his dump truck. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that would have... That would have been a neat twist if he just says, screw you guys, and just goes off. Or he's the only one who knows where it is, too, because he just put it in that special spot in the junker. I mean, again, open the movie with the heist and then have the rest of the film be post-heist. It would have been awesome to see, yeah, to have that heist be the first part of it and then watch the entire team crumble in on itself as they all try to backstab each other for the money. This is almost what Reservoir Dogs was. The Tar- I mean, I said this was like a Tarantino flick. That's almost what Reservoir Dogs was, is let's have the heist go wrong and what happens next. Well, even with the heist going right, I mean... Even then, there's still room for drama and the character breakdown. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's the, You could have, it, it, like, just change a couple of things to where these guys actually are stabbing each other in the back, trying to one-up each other and trying to, like, getting greedy and trying to take more than their share. Yeah. See, I mean, what was funny was when uh, Frank Sinatra had this story pitched to him, he said, forget the film, let's just do the job. It's like, <laughs> oh, Frank would have ended up in jail in 10 minutes if he tried to do this actual life. <laughs> well, he's yeah. Frank Sinatra, because he's not exactly stealth. Right. Well, I mean, well, it would I... be no different than the D. Martin character who's up on stage as a performer. Yeah. And then what I found out was in the remake, there was originally a plans for a stage performer played by Bill Murray that was supposed to be part of the team. And that that oh, kind of got scrapped uh, in the development process. Uh, I love I'm, Bill Murray, I'm, great actor, but that was that w- so taken I can totally of- picture him as a Vegas stage performer. I can, but that would so... But how would you work his character into everything? Oh my God, yeah. that would have totally changed the movie. And I don't like the Which, idea. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it went beyond the first draft or two. So Thank God. I'm really glad that they <laughs> did not follow that through. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on to the music here? What do we think of the music in the original film? It had like the same five pieces that were just repeated over and over. They were good pieces, but again... And not just the songs, I'm just talking about the score itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, the music was fine, except that they just way overused it. Yeah. I mean, that... We just heard that over and over and over again. Yeah. Had they done it once and then left it and done something else? I actually, at the beginning of this movie, in my notes, I have like, oh, this is good music. And then like, as the movie's going on, my notes are getting progressively harsher. (laughs) Giant of fire music. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the EO11 wasn't as bad as Ain't That a Kick in the Head, but they felt the need to... EO11 has some nice soul to it. And I love that they they, they tied it so much to his character. Yeah, that too. I a- mean, a- it, the kick in the head is like, let's stop the movie for two minutes to sell the album. Yeah. It felt like product placement. Yeah. And it just was the other thing, too, is that EO11 really, like, as an actual song being played for the majority of the song was only done twice. And that was once 
the first time and then once for the credits. Oh, well, there, there were the three times. The first time it was when we first meet the Sammy Davis character. Then there was the part when he was driving away from the heist. But he, he, but the, he just thing. sings it. He's just, no, yeah, he's but, just, but he's still he just, singing enough of it to bring it back. And then, um, yeah, and then the end credits where suddenly it takes on a completely different tone. Oh, yeah. And I, and I actually really liked that. They used that song very well. They Unlike did. Ain't It the Kick in the Head, where it's just like, Dean's on. We're yeah. kicking you in the head. Yes. Right. Well, and then that was like, they couldn't have a Dean Martin scene without him without singing that song, at least in part. And I just love the shot of the three women just staring at him. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even like really into it. They're just staring at him. <laughs> like they're just so drunk they're leaning on the stage and random creepy xylophone player (laughs) well you gotta have the random creepy xylophone player who's called red because he has red beard those are the days yeah uh let's see what about the music in the remake i love that music i want to have a heist and use that music as my it's so simple and yet you never get tired of it yeah. yeah. And I think that's probably in part because it is as simple as it is. Mm-hmm. There's nothing too... Um, it's catchy, but it's not overbearing. Right. Well, yeah. And the thing is, it's a score. It scores a scene. It's not like we have to pause for two minutes for them to have a musical number. Yeah. Right. I don't know if either one of you caught this, but there's that one point when they're all first meeting up at Ruben's house, where mm-hmm. you get the whole team together at the beginning. If you listen, the music playing underneath that is the music that we hear when they're at the fountain at the end. Oh. Yeah, it's really, oh, really slight. That. I only noticed it actually last time. But yeah, it's really, really slight, but that's the same music we get at the fountain later. I love the fountain scene. Oh, that's my God. That's such an awesome scene. See, I actually like the final send-offs in both movies, even though they're so completely different in tone. Like, yeah. I love the scene of them just walking down the street defeated in the original, and then the great scene of them sharing a triumphant moment at the fountain in, in the remake. Yeah. Yeah. I almost think after that moment in the fountain, I don't need the three to six months later that they tack on. It's cool. Like, it doesn't take away from the story, but I was like, no, they could have just done the movie yeah, there. They, they could definitely. I don't know that he needed to get Tess back in the end, or that was something you could have done in the sequel. Well, I think the implication guy just got that he was going to get her back. So. Well, I thought that maybe yeah, they, it was just that he had finally convinced her that Terry was as ruthless as he was. So he saved her from that. You kind of knew they were getting back together because um, when she runs out to meet him while he's being put into the police that's car, right. she says, that's my husband. Yeah, exactly. But the point of that was both to show that she was waiting for him, which you kind of was a little redundant at that point. But it was more, I think, to show that Benedict was still right behind him yeah. pretty much. Right. I love that Danny voluntarily gets himself arrested again. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Just because not only the plan, but because that's the only way to throw Benedict off his trail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, even if it feels a little bit like we don't need the three to six months later, we do get that last back and forth between uh, Danny and Rusty. And that's just awesome. Yeah. Rusty's there. He needs yeah. Rusty. Rusty's there. I, well, I love the uh, Ted Nugent called. He wants his shirt back. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you were the bride. Yeah. I love that. That was so well. <laughs> And honestly, I didn't notice it till this time. Both times that Danny gets out of jail, he gets out of jail wearing a suit. Yeah. Isn't it the same suit? That's because he went in wearing it, and so that's what they get him back when he gets out. Yeah, no, Uh, but I'm like, but it's just such a badass thing. I'm like, he's that awesome that he comes out of jail wearing a suit. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting that they very deliberately didn't pick a Sinatra song for the Vegas introduction. Yeah. Hmm. They said that they, they were trying very hard not to do obvious 
calls to the Rat Pack. They didn't want this to be a, a, a new Rat Pack. They just wanted it to be a new thing of its own. Exactly. They didn't want that comparison there. But I guess what they said was that one of the scenes they were shooting, I don't remember which one, but there was like on the wall behind them was actually like a poster uh, I don't remember if it was the full Rat Pack or just Sinatra on it, and they had and they made the decision to purposely not shoot facing that wall because they didn't want the the image there. Well, then that's interesting that they had Henry Silva and Angie Dickinson in this movie. Um, well, they were well, though they were actually at the demolition scene, which was a much longer scene before they cut it down, mm-hmm. and then they are also at the boxing match. You only see them briefly, but they're still there. Right, but they, I, I think they didn't want any like anything obvious- overt. Yeah. Right. And, then, and you know, a big poster, it would have called attention right. to itself. Right. And I mean, as, as we pointed out with Saul and with going to Danny to try to get the money back, there are ties and nods to the original, right. but they aren't things that you would know unless you've seen it. Right. I don't yeah. think it was so much that they didn't want any ties to the original. I think it was more that they didn't want... They still wanted the, to separate themselves from subtle. the specter of the right. Rat Pack. Exactly. They didn't want there to be the obvious calls of attention that would cause the comparisons, I think. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be subtle, not like, look, look how obvious I am. Look at how, are you seeing how obvious I'm being? At least they didn't right. do a scene involving infrared paint. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, we get something close to it with the glow sticks. Yeah, yeah but the glow sticks make sense. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great using the infrared paint where he smears that on his forehead? <laughs> <laughs> that was the weird line in the original of, I'd like to take this infrared paint and mix it in with a dame's makeup. That would make for some crazy nights. Uh, yeah, that was just a weird line. Yeah, that, I'm like, and Sammy Davis Jr. laughs, and I'm like, yeah. yeah. You know who I loved in the remake? Bulldog the Bruiser. <gasps> yes. So awesome. He's so cool. Well, I love how he he's coming in and we think he's going to pound the crap out of Danny, but it turns out that, no, that's another part of the plan. Yeah. yeah and then it's like, well, how wife pray he's in, he's in He's in both of the sequels, too. and oh, he's he? I forgot yeah, no, he's in, the, he's in all three movies. He doesn't have a big part in any of them. He kind of is kind of more just a callback to the fact that he's helped them out and he keeps helping them out. Oh, that's nice. I think I remember noticing that, but it's been a few years since I've seen the sequels. So it's nice that they brought him back. Yeah. I love the shots of him pretending to beat up the guy by himself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then who I liked in the original... Don Murphy, the TV newscaster with his weird beard. And he's not even part of the main cast. It's like, what newscaster has a beard like that? Was he <laughs> like the Anderson Cooper of that era? You're taking us to a weird place there, Noel. I'm sorry, it's just such a funny beard. It's so random, Oh, too. no, it, it's a hilarious beard. But I love the fact that, like, your favorite character from the original is, like, someone who's not even part of the main story. Somebody who's on screen for, like, 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I'm such a fan of the old TV series Johnny Quest. And Dr. Quest, Johnny's dad, had that exact same fucking beard. Even the way it would just kind of point out at the end. I just, I don't know, it just just always struck me as very funny. So why don't we talk about Red Skeleton? (laughs) Red Skeleton? Red Skeleton. Yeah, Red Skeleton. I love how, let's take one of the most lovable people in entertainment and reveal them to be a gambling addict. Yeah. The thing is, they do it, but at the same time, he doesn't turn into that crazy guy who just starts screaming at people. Right, they're playing it straight. I like that. Right. It was a fun cameo, but it was also very, it was brief, which I guess was good too. But he's still a more memorable character than half of the Eleven and Andy Dickinson. and that's a problem. (laughs) Well, yeah, in my notes, I'm like, no, don't take him away, security guys. He's the best part of this movie. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's like you you forget that Frank Sinatra's even in that scene, standing right next to him. Yeah, I was just like, oh, right, right, he's here. 
let's bring in someone to overshadow half the cast. <laughs> I like the cameos in the remake of the opening poker game with all oh, the young God. TV stars. We had Topher Grace, Joshua Jackson, Barry Watson, Holly Marie Combs, and Shane West. That was it such was an quite, awesome scene. It, that was so everybody that was on the WB before it was the CW. Yeah. That was so like the the and like, all of them playing complete idiots when it comes to poker. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that like there's the the other commentary on the DVD for the remake that's some of the cast and they they're talking about how when they were doing their research for their roles mm-hmm. like they were basically on the other side of that. Oh, so it was just a nice little thing they added because of that. I'm not sure if that was the reason they added it, but it was. Or but, but they could relate to it. Yeah, they could totally relate to it because they were on the other side where, you know, they were being tried. They Coached had by these, poker experts, yeah. Right, they had these experts trying to teach them and um, getting frustrated. <laughs> I just love that it's all these guys and then random Holly Marie Combs. Well, she was <laughs> on Charmed at that point, so it kind of made sense. I love just like seeing Topher Grace and then just being like, oh, Topher, what happened to you? You're not really in anything anymore, are you? And I, I love anything with Joshua Jackson in it. That's the main he's reason awesome, I love this yeah. movie is because Joshua Jackson is in it. <laughs> I don't know if he's in the third one, but I know Topher's in the second movie, too. Yeah, isn't I, remember, he? I remember he came back. It's kind of funny, like just on, I guess, kind of a, a meta level, like watching all these guys come out and um, get mobbed by people and George Clooney and Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt kind of, walk right past kind of, the crowd. Yeah, yeah. just melt into mm-hmm. the crowd and nobody pays any attention to them. I but. noticed that. That was great. And then I love that there's just like this random exotic dance happening in the window right behind them. Yeah. That was an awesome line that Brad Pitt had there, too, where it was like, it's the longest night of my life. And he's like, what? I'm running away with your wife. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So anything else we want to add? Um. I hate that orange shirt that Frank Sinatra was wearing when we first saw him. Oh, my God. I think that's like my first note. (laughs) That looked like my grandmother's carpeting. (laughs) <laughs> oh. oh wait it's what's up with sinatra's orange sweater it's terrifying me like i thought that that thing was going to try to take over the whole movie and kill everyone it terrified Do you remember me. that old looney tunes character of the monster that was basically this giant red yes. thing of fur with yes. sneakers that's what i thought of when i saw his sweater <laughs> nice oh julia roberts wardrobe in the remake mm-hmm. i love her clothes I think the wardrobe was great. In the re- Even when they were wearing ugly outfits, they fit the character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was so, so per- everything in the remake is so precise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like someone, like, you get the feeling that they really went through and really thought about everything. Oh, yeah. And I think this is one of the few movies where they're like, they're doing the remake of a Rat Pack movie and no one really kind of freaked out. Right. Because right. it's, like, well, it's not really that good of a movie. <laughs> yeah, Ocean's Eleven existed more on its reputation than on its actual quality. Right. Yeah. Especially after Reservoir Dogs came out, everyone was like, oh, remember the Rat Pack? They were so awesome. And then Ocean's Eleven came out and showed, we can still do better. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's not that good of a movie. No. Well, why don't we go ahead and talk about the sequels here a bit of the remake. And as I said, it's it's been a few years since I've really had a chance to sit down and see them, so all the details aren't really clear. But Well, I actually happen to like the second one, although not nearly as much as the first. I actually really like the second one, too, but it is such a... They really they had fun with that one a little too much. Yeah, because yeah, that was the one where Terry Benedict catches back up with everybody, demands his money back. And then you have the French thief running around and... Yeah, they basically yeah. have to steal enough to be able to pay him back. So they 
can't pull anything in the States for some reason. And so they have to go to Europe. The problem that the second movie has is that, for, well, I think one of the big problems is that all of the things that they did really well in the first one, as far as making things, even though they were a bit out there, they were still very believable. They started doing really, really out there things like a holographic egg. Yeah. <laughs> I actually really love, though, that they had Julia Roberts's character pretend to be Julia Roberts. I did like that. And then run that into awesome. the real Bruce Willis. I love in I love in the credits of that movie for Ocean's Twelve. The credits actually say Cass Ocean, Cass as Ocean Julia. as Julia Roberts as Julia Roberts. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think another big issue with the second movie is that the story loses a lot when you take the characters out of Vegas. I think mm. because the setting was such a big. It's almost part. the setting itself is one of the villains. Right. Well, and, and and like I said, one of the taglines for the remake was, you know, in any other city, they would be the villains, and then they'd take them and put them in any other city. You know what would have been great, though? Set them up against the Yakuza, Ocean's 12, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> might be, if they do another one, that might be what they do. I don't think uh, they will, though, because Bernie Mac Because Bernie Mac's gone, yeah. yeah. It was one of those things where they kind of went a little too ridiculous with everything, I think. I, I mean, had it was a little still, too much fun, yeah. It was still a really fun movie, and I still really like it, even though I know a lot of people don't. <laughs> it's still really creative and unexpected. It's almost just a little too creative and unexpected, or at least for the mainstream audience that really liked the first one. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree there. You have them go up against the... The French Thief. The French Thief, and it basically becomes a competition with him. The third movie, they actually bring that character back, but kind of stealthily. But um, but the they kind of reeled back the oddball stuff to kind of do something more. They like did. The well, first. they they basically went back to the roots of the first movie there, mm. um, where they had it set again in Vegas, which again was a really crucial part of the whole thing. Also, that one kind of became a little unique in of itself because they they weren't stealing money; they just had to make sure that the casino lost. Mm-hmm. Because what it was, was um, Ruben was trying to build this casino with Bank, who is played by Al Pacino, kind of backstabs Ruben and takes the entire... Because how do you top Andy Garcia? You get Al Pacino. Yeah. Um, At this point in his career, I think he's just playing Al Pacino. (laughs) So basically the idea is that to get back at him for screwing over Ruben and sending him into a pretty much a coma they basically try to um completely bankrupt the guy in the opening day of his casino like he has to make a certain amount or he gets basically kicked out of his own and casino by one where they actually work with benedict because yeah yeah because see, this guy's an even bigger threat than he is yeah and it's kind of along the lines of why Ruben agreed to help them in Ocean's Eleven is that he's bank is a threat to Benedict, so Benedict agrees to help. Mm. And then they screw Benedict over in the end by... Um, well, let's not spoil the ending here because we're not going into a full review on him. Yeah, okay. Uh, I won't say anything more than that then. <laughs> Plus, uh, I want to go back and watch these again. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what I like is that by putting it back into Vegas, they're able to, there's kind of a spirit of... It fits the world, yeah. It fits the world and it fits the spirit of the characters again. And they're they're able to go into a little bit deeper into these characters because this is where they they grew up. Because Danny and Rusty have a conversation about how Ruben helped them both get their start. And then they redo the very end of the movie. This isn't really a spoiler. Mm -hmm. They basically do the fountain scene again but with fireworks 
Mm-hmm. It's I think the same music and the directions of the fireworks is very evocative of that fountain scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but definitely the, the sequels are worth checking out if you enjoy the first one. Yeah, uh, thirteen much more than twelve, but. 12, but 12, I think it's. I think 12, 12 still, should be watched, but it's going to be divisive on whether or not people like it. Yeah, I agree. But then there's always 13 to follow it with. So. Yeah. 12 is almost like the whole crew on vacation. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. I guess what I can say about it is don't let 12 put you off of 13 if you don't like 12. Right. Everyone should check out 12 and then check out 13 right after. Mm-hmm. And 12 does have um, Eddie Izzard in it, so. Yeah, yes. it's supposed to 13. You know what? I need to see 13 because I haven't seen 13 yet. I've seen. Oh, yeah. You need to see it. Yeah, because Eddie Izzard's back in that one and he actually plays a bigger role, I think, in that one than he did in, in 12. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, now I'm just going to have to watch it, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much a given now. All right. Well, this is a, the part of the show where I usually ask if you had to pick one of these two films to watch once a year, every year. But I think we all know which one yeah, we're all going to pick. Yeah, this is really a tough decision. I think we're all on the side of the remake here. Yeah. This is like one of the few episodes where we're all kind of in universal agreement on both films, <laughs> which is very rare between Evie and I. Yeah. yeah. Does this mean that the sky is going to open up and the four horsemen are going to Dogs come and cats living together. The, the, the apocalypse, basically. <laughs> I don't see anything outside yet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think this ends us for this episode. Evie, you want to tell us what we're doing next month? We're doing the Manchurian Candidate next month. Yes. With hey. special guest Weston. You told me it was going to be Santa Christ. I always <gasps> tell you it's going to be Santa Christ, and yet you keep believing me. Yeah, you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Tessa. Thank you for having me. No problem. Good night, Evie. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode, please check us out at www.ihateloveremakes.com. We've left the comment sections open, so please let us know what you think about the films we've discussed. Speaking of which, I Hate Slash Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Slash Love Remakes is a made-of-fail production. Hello. Santa? No better Santa Christ. Awesome! I ride reindeer for your sins. (laughs) That just sounds so dirty. (laughs) I love it. I recommend it. Oh, God. You gotta have Please tell me that you're gonna edit this because I just completely lost my train of thought. Oh, everything is easy edited. Don't worry about it. You heard how many times I stumbled during the synopsis. Um, You make me sound coherent. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. Never thought I could feel so free.